Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Happy New Year to you, to Megan, to all of our listeners on all four corners of the globe. Happy New Year. Man, I'm excited about the new year, and I'm excited about today's episode because this is one of the most critical moments in the history and the story of WCW. And we get to make you relive it in painstaking agony. Of course, we're talking about the debut edition of Thunder. And this went down on January 16th in Daytona Beach, Florida at the Ocean Center. And what a cool little twist it is that, you know, where WCW first got hot and really turned everything around and the, and professional wrestling was forever changed. Hulk Hogan became a bad guy in the same building as the debut of thunder. It's like bookends on WCW sort of, is it not? It is and you know, off air as we're prepping to launch the show, we both pulled it up and realized that this mucker father is two hours and 21 minutes long. No wonder this thing crashed and burned. Who the hell would start off a show when you didn't have to at over two hours? Unbelievable. Yeah. It's funny because we're taping this very, very early in the morning. And I said, you know, Eric, I, I regret my decision here. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, I thought, Hey, we'll watch the first thunder. This will be like punishment for Eric. This will be fun. And then I realized it's two and a half hours, even without commercials. And I realized, well, the fucking rib is on me. This is, this is brutal. And then you immediately said, no wonder it died. And it just tickled me, <laughs> uh, without further ado, I'm ready to get this torture underway. We're doing this watch along style, boys and girls, pull up WCW thunder on your WWE network. This show went down on January 8th, 1998, such a big moment in, uh, in wrestling history here. I'm really excited uh, for us to uh, dig into this one without further ado. Fire up your WWE network. Let's get this show on the road. Two hours, 21 minutes, 19 seconds. We're going to do uh, uh, a quick countdown. And when I say play, you'll press play. Eric, are you ready? I am so ready. It hurts. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, play. I got to give you credit for the open. Uh, I've always been a big fan of the Thunder open. The way this is put together, it's very, very well done. This is going to be one of, I think, three different opens. Uh, but I really enjoy this look, and I love the logo. The Thunder open you guys would go to is probably even more uh, well done than this one. But the graphics package and all of that, you guys should be congratulated. And there we go. Daytona, where Hulk Hogan first became a bad guy. And now look at this set. This set sucks. This is the aggro crag is what I've nicknamed it. What, what was the, what was the thinking here? We're going back to the stone age where we need some hieroglyphics in here. What, what, what's the look? What are we going for? I have no fucking <laughs> clue. Zero. Nada. I, that was horrible. That looked like something that was left over at one of the Disney MGM studios for, you know, a Jurassic Park ride theme or something. That was just horrible. About who way, should I who should I have fired for that, Conrad? Uh, I would think that you probably 
based on what I've heard over the years, I would think that you would have fired uh, David Crockett. But David no, Crockett no, 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 no. David wasn't. David was. David Crockett was really responsible for the logistics, getting everything moved in, making sure that we had the right freelance crews on board. Uh, he, he was a logistics guy. He wasn't a creative guy. That was a that was a colossal creative catastrophe. The three C's. We checked all of them. Oh, okay. Well, no, I, th- I think I think honestly, and I'm gonna have because I'm gonna be in Qatar uh, next month. Not Qatar, like Qatar, Qatar. I've been I've been reprimanded on Twitter for for pronouncing it wrong. It's not Qatar like guitar. It's Cutter, Cutter. So I'm gonna be in Cutter with Craig Leathers, who is our director at this point in time. And I would, I'm going to talk to Craig about this because I let it slide back in 1998. I don't think I can let it slide. You know, make up for lost time. Just in case I say, if you can go back, you should just fire Mike Weber. Just in case it's probably his fault. Well, no shit. I should have done that a half a dozen times. So as we see the, uh, the announce desk here, by the way, this is going to be filled with clips. Uh, and, and for very good reason, you know, January, 1998 is such a big time in WCW. This show, the first thunder sold out capacity crowd were on the heels of Starcade 1997, the biggest WCW pay-per-view ever. There you see ravishing Rick rude. He's recently jumped ship after the whole Bret Hart debacle at survivor series, just uh, about six weeks prior to this. And this is a clip from nitro. And I got to tell you to me. Starting this show with a clip of Nitro set the stage for what Thunder was going to be. Because it's been my experience that the A show doesn't usually show clips. The B show does. So the B show, I guess what I'm saying is this is here to complement the main course. This is our baked potato. You came here for the steak, but... Hey, we've also got this too. And and just the positioning of we're going to open this very first episode, not with a hot match like we would on thunder, but instead with a, a video recap of what happened with our quote unquote steak just a few days ago. I'm, you know, I, I, you're right, but I think in retrospect, that was a wrong, it was a wrong move. You know, and this is, again, this is why it's so much fun doing these things, and especially now that it's 2020. So when I say, you know, with 2020 hindsight, people are going to go, wow, is he talking about the fact that it's 2020? Or are we talking about the, you know, the the saying 2020 hindsight? But here in 2020, with 2020 hindsight, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have have endeavored to keep the shows as separate. Uh, and must see, you know, the type of thing where you've got to tune in to see it because you're not going to get a chance to see the replay or the recap. I, I, I would have made a, a bigger commitment to keeping Nitro, Nitro, and Thunder, Thunder, and not cross-pollinating too often because that's what kills the brand separation. That's what, and it's not obvious to people. You know, when they're sitting at home and they're watching, they don't say to themselves, hmm, well, if they're just going to bring me up to date on what happened on Monday Nitro, I don't have to watch Monday Nitro. I could just watch the clips on Thursday on Thunder. They don't say that to themselves, but you're conditioning them. You're training them subconsciously. They begin to realize that it's no longer that important to tune into the A show because you're going to get an update on the B show. And the minute you take that 
that need the the uh, and it's early in the morning and my, my mouth isn't quite keeping up with my brain or vice versa. But w- once you establish to the audience that it's really not just that important, you lose that kind of tune in necessity yeah. that makes television work. And that's why I say if I had to do it all over again, I would have done it differently. Here again, we're looking at Nitro. It's yeah. just- we're like six minutes in and we're still watching recap videos. By the way, we see all three announcers here. We've got Bobby, the brain Heenan on the left, uh, Lee Marshall on the right, Tony Schiavone, right in the middle driving again. If you had it to do over again, you know, these days, when we see the WWE do two shows like this, we have two separate announce crews. Was this too much Tony Schiavone? If there is such a thing, you can never have too much Tony Schiavone in my opinion. Um, well, you disagree uh, unless you unless you're way. Lois, then maybe, <laughs> then maybe just maybe there could be too much Tony Schiavone in your life. There is thanks to Blue Chew. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, to be honest and not try to be funny here this early in the morning, I, I think it is. It's it, it again. That's part of the problem that Thunder created, kind of at a macro level. Um, it was too much overexposure. Of of not only talent, but announcers as well. You see, uh, Dave Penzer there getting his uh, seat stolen by the macho man, Randy Savage. You know, Dave is a guy, I have to say this. I didn't get to know Dave very well in WCW while we were working together. I mean, he, he did his thing. I did my thing and our paths only crossed, you know, a couple oh. hours a day. Dude, tops, got, if that nailed by macho man right there, he really laid it in and you're Mucker father could lay him in. He just did have, he had no mercy on me. What's up with that? Dude, I mean, it was awesome. You went down miss- like, oh, how about that big lariat from the back with Kevin Nash? This is good stuff. I'm glad you're showing these recaps. <laughs> <laughs> Beats the fuck out of what you're going to watch during the show. Probably. But yeah, no, this is good stuff. It's great storytelling here. It's, it's great action. And it's overexposing the hell out of nitro, but anyway, you know. continue with Dave Penzer. My apologies. No, Dave Penzer. I was going to say, I didn't get a chance really to know Dave very well. I mean, we worked together and we communicated, but you know, that's not the same thing as getting to know somebody. Right. And it wasn't until really the last couple of years when I've crossed paths with Dave Penzer, whether it's at a, a star cast or you know, another uh, event. Um, and I, after having sat down with him and talked to him, he's a super nice guy. I didn't realize what a good guy he was until most recently. By the way, too, if you are uh, buying or selling real estate in the Tampa area, uh, do what the stars do. Go see Dave Penzer. Dave, uh, I believe, helped Chris Jericho and, and his wife find their new home and sell their old home, and he'd be glad to help you he's with Exit Realty in Tampa. So look him up. He's probably got some old uh, WCW stories. Which is more than we can say for gentleman, Chris Adams. He is the first wrestler that we're going to see in the ring here on thunder. And of course, Chris is no longer with us. What a tragic end to his life. Just a few years after this, by this point though, if you're a longtime wrestling fan in 1998, you were keenly aware of who gentleman Chris Adams is. He's credited with really bringing the, um, the super kick to popularity. Uh, how was, how was Chris Adams to work with probably most famous for his work in world-class, but here he is in the big time in 1998 on WCW. 100% pro a gentleman's gentleman. Um, easy to work with. Uh, those are the things that stand out, you know, 
the most when I think about Chris Adams. I never, you know, I never had a negotiated deal with him. We never really got into the the trenches, so to speak, when it came to negotiating or deal making or anything like that. So, um, you know, my my communication with him and my relationship with him was superficial, um, just based on everything that was going on at the time. But what I did know of him and seeing him backstage and working with others, and that's really how you can tell what somebody's all about is, you know, how when you see a couple guys in the back, you know, laying out a match or talking about what they need to do or want to do, you know, what's, what's the tone? What's the tenor? How, uh, how generous are they? How, how concerned are they that they want to make their opponent look as good as they want to look? And, you know, sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes it's not so obvious, you know, watching people lay things out. But gentlemen, uh, Chris Adams, he was always uh, – he, he came by the name honestly. Let's put it that way. He was, he was a true gentleman. Macho man, Randy Savage, clearly one of the biggest stars around. Uh, we've, uh, told lots of great macho man stories here, uh, at least on screen. He's paired with Elizabeth here by 1998. How was their relationship? Obviously at this point, they've been divorced for a long time. They're both sort of doing their own thing. And once upon a time, Randy was love sick about miss Elizabeth. Do you think that was still, you know, bubbling up? in 1998 or what was their real life relationship like here? You know, I think Randy loved Miss Elizabeth until the day he died. I I really do. Now I I think he loved her in a different way. I I think he, and I didn't know Randy and Liz, you know, when they first got together and they were first married, obviously they were in WWF and I wasn't. So I, I had no idea what that relationship was about. I've heard and read the same things that everybody else has in, in that regard. But, you know, in watching Randy with Liz and even in the beginning of my negotiations with Liz about coming into WCW, Randy was very protective, not in, an, not in a jealous spouse kind of way, but in a big brother kind of way. He, he was very, very protective of her. And again, not in a jealous way. It was clear that their, you know, emotion—not their emotional relationship, but their 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 husband and wife relationship had, had had sailed. But they were very, very close friends. And Randy, he he treated her like a little sister. I forgot that the uh, the ring skirt for these very first thunders has the same sort of look and feel. Uh, as the the terrible thunder set that you guys what in the with. what in the name of fuck is that ring and that is all so ugly well it just looks like it's horrible it looks like it belongs at disney like if this was for worldwide tapings i mean yeah, that's it it's very reminiscent of the old wcw saturday night set where it was like the robotic arm and it's the spaceship and we can rebuild oh, but it. that was futuristic that was like you know into the future this is like going back to fucking medieval times. I mean, this looks like a jet ring looks like a giant buffet table at the medieval castle outside of Orlando, where you take your family, eat cheap roast beef and watch fake. What do they call those jousters? Those guys are knights and shit jousting. This is horrible. What a great storyline though, that we start the first episode with Lex Luger and the macho man, not, get necessarily seeing eye to eye, but it doesn't look like the macho man is seeing eye to eye with anybody. He does a run in 
nails him with a chair, rolls him in. And what do you know? Gentleman, Chris Adams gets the win. So your very first match in thunder history, gentleman, Chris Adams beats the macho man, Randy Savage. How about that? Outstanding. And a great way to start the night for young gentleman, Chris Adams. What a day for him to make a debut on thunder. By the way, have you ever heard Bruce Pritchard's gentleman, Chris Adams story? No, I never have. You've got to, obviously he's, as you and I are taping this, he's busy today, but he'll have some time this weekend and you should, uh, just ping him when he's got a free minute. Hey, love to hear your Chris Adams story. When you get a chance, because I got to talk to Bruce. I haven't talked to him. Yet. I mean, we've shared texts and I've had one or two short conversations with him, but I haven't really had a chance to catch up with Bruce. He, uh, he called me last night when he was getting ready for bed and he was so sleepy that by the end of the conversation, I thought he was literally asleep. So I just said, goodbye. Well, I can only, who are these two clowns? Yeah. We're I, looking. Oh my God. Give it to us. Conrad. Describe what we're looking at here. Well, you're coming out surveying your kingdom reluctantly. You know what? I'm on top of the world. I'm selling out everything, including this building, even though I didn't want to be here, I don't want to do this show. But look at me. I sold out everything and I took my t-shirts. You, uh, that's right. And I didn't wear a belt. You absolutely were reading my mind. I did not <laughs> want to do this show. I did not want to do this show. I'm probably the only person in history, in, particularly in the professional wrestling sports entertainment industry, that had the owner, the CEO of a network reach out to me and say, Hey, I want you to do a two hour show for me every Thursday night on TBS. And I didn't want to do it. Nobody wanted to do it. I just, uh, this does bring back, I mean, it brings back a lot of good memories in, in some respects because the reason we ended up here, quite honestly, just to be clear about it, so hot. we ended, we ended up with thunder because nitro was such a huge success that Ted Turner wanted a, a property on Thunder on TBS uh, that was just as successful as Nitro was on TNT. So we got here by virtue of our success, but we became a victim of that success. And this is just the first of many steps along the way. But yeah, we, we, we're here. Got to make the most of it. And by the way, sold out, hanging from the rafters. And in this era, the rumor and innuendo is everywhere, even in mainstream media, that Hulk Hogan was leaving and that he had in fact signed a deal with the WWF. Of course, we know that's not true. And he's roughly going to reference that here on the show saying that he's here in WCW and the NWO for life. That's his way to at least address it. And even though people have been critical over the years about Hulk Hogan and his positioning on the card, Chris Jericho and others have been pretty public about you know, he was holding down the young guys or whatever he's drawing the big ratings. And by the way, he looks like a million bucks. And, uh, as you would say, it's one tan motherfucker. He is. I mean, that is an exceptional tan. I mean, if you Google exceptional tans, it'll take you to this clip that we're watching right now on thunder. You know what? I'm just going to do that just because exceptional tans. And see what comes up. I'm going to hit Google image and just see what happens. By the way, speaking of Hulk Hogan and TNs, I'm still here in Florida, by the way, uh, Mrs. B and I decided to extend our stay here in Florida, mostly because we, I have a weather app 
you know, so I check the weather in Cody every day. It's like, you know, it's, it's ass ugly in, in Wyoming. So we're going to extend our stay here for a little while because I need to come up and see you and maybe take a trip to Atlanta. And I figured as long as I'm here in the Southeast, it'll be a hell of a lot easier to get back and forth than driving all the way back to Wyoming and then turning around and jumping on a plane and coming back here. So sure. we're going to be here for a little while. And I'm uh, I'm heading over to Hulk's house uh, this afternoon to catch up with him and, and see how he's doing. I haven't seen him in about two weeks. He was looking great, you know, rehabbing off that amazingly intense back surgery that he had. But he was up and around and looking great. So I'm anxious to see how well he's doing today. I'm going to be uh, 486 miles from you this weekend. Well, where's that? Uh, in the Panhandle near Pensacola. Uh, the wife's birthday, as you're listening to this, is today. Uh, January 6th. So, uh, rented a, a cool little spot down there and we're going to, uh, have some fun and, and watch the waves roll in. Wait a minute. Pensacola's 486 miles from Tampa. I just had to look that up. Wow. I would have thought it was closer. Yeah. I was going to say, cause Mrs. B and I'll drive up. We'll bring the dog. Well, no, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, Hey, you guys are welcome. And then I pulled it up and I was like, well, he ain't driving 500 miles for this shit. Oh fuck. I'll drive 500 miles for a good burger. Okay. I I don't mind driving. Well, I like driving. I just hate flying. Driving to me. Look, when when you can drive and you, you when you don't have to be somewhere, right? Like right. when you can just, you know, let's go up and see Conrad and Megan up in Pensacola this weekend. What do you want to leave? You want to leave it noon? Nah, it's too late. Let's leave it 10. Eh, it's a little too early. Let's leave it 11. I like that kind of stuff. But when you've got, you know, when your flight leaves at at, at nine oh three, and you've got to be there two hours early, and you've got to fight through holiday, you know, crowds and people and nonsense to get to your flight, and then you got to connect, it's just a pain in the ass. But a five hundred mile drive, shit, cold beer and a burger, and I'm there. Well, come on, you're welcome. It's a five bedroom joint, and I've only got two other couples coming, so you got your pick, two other rooms. Ooh. Uh, well, that sounds like fun. Well, come on. Hey, here's what's, I'll text you the address. Here's what's fun to me. I'm in the, I mean, I'm almost touching Tennessee here in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm at the tippy top of Alabama, but when I can drive all the way through the state and into Florida. And for me, it's only 362 miles. How is that? Like <laughs> I'm a hundred miles closer than you and you're already in Florida. I don't get it. And I'm going to have, I'm, I'm not doubting you because I've learned. Over the last two years, never doubt Conrad Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten my ass kicked enough. So um, I'm, I'm not doubting you, but I'm just going to reconfirm that it is indeed that far away. I'm going to go to my little Waze app. Do you have Waze, W-A-Z-E? Do you have that app? Everybody I know does, but I've never used it. Sell me on Waze. Oh, it's awesome. Here's why I love it. And I first got it when I was in LA. And I know we're supposed to be talking about Thunder. And right now we got JJ Dillon flapping his jowls at Mike today. And I don't know, I don't know what he's saying because I got the audio turned down. But back to Waze, um, I got it when I was, well, it must have been five or six years ago when I was basically living in Los Angeles and had meetings every day in and around the Los Angeles area. And if you've ever tried to drive around Los Angeles, it is a pain in the ass, you know, mostly because of traffic. But this this app weighs you put in a destination and in real time, it reroutes you around heavy traffic like it reads it instantaneously. So if I was going up to 405, say it was down to Marina Del Rey and I needed to get up into wherever 
in North Hollywood. And I'm on the 405, and all of a sudden the 405 jams up. It tells you immediately which exits to take, and it winds you through, like, you know, the back neighborhoods and all the little side streets and, you know, off the main drag. So you can get around this stuff. So I, I love it. It's a great app. But I'm going to put in Pensacola just to see what it says. I'm, uh, I'm loading it up right now. So I'll, I'll be ready for my trip today because I've got to, I've got to drive today myself. And so we see Lex Luger here, by the way, JJ Dillon is out here to reverse the decision from earlier saying, uh, Nick Lambros is, uh, is not going to allow shenanigans like this to happen. Uh, he had no reason to interfere in that Randy Savage match. So before we get into fines and suspensions, we're going to start by reversing that decision. So Chris Adams, win will not be on the record books. That's, that's not fair. That is not fair at all. Somebody should have protested. By the way, I've got 320 miles to Pensacola. Well, you got to get that ways out, baby. I'm telling you, I'm telling you 320 miles. I, I do that without a hamburger. <laughs> so here we go. We've, uh, we've got some. Some more storyline pieces, a little leftover from writing the wrongs of Starcade. Of course, Nick Lambros, wink, wink, WCW's attorney, who's going to make sure that he writes the wrongs of WCW and, and the questionable officiating. And, uh, we got a little carryover here about Louis Spicoli. We recently talked about Louis on, uh, WHW. Tony Schiavone's podcast, because he and I were tasked with doing uh, a thunder, which was a, a bonus episode for Patreon over there. And it was the episode that was unfortunately Louis Bacoli's very last. He would, uh, step in and do a little commentary. And as we remember just a couple of days later, he was no longer with us. And that was, I don't know, probably a month and change before this. And it just felt like Louie, who had been most recently in ECW, and that's even what that shirt that he's wearing is about. He had a, a little bit of a feud with Tommy Dreamer, who called himself the innovator of violence. Well, he's wearing a shirt here that says the real innovator. But he started his career as Rad Radford over in the WWF. You probably saw him at the AAA uh, when Worlds Collide pay-per-view happened, but a very young prospect that a lot of people had a lot of time for and thought he had a big future in wrestling. He'd been a, a little bit everywhere, uh, but this would be his last stop. Any memories of, uh, working with Louie at all? Yeah, a, a little bit, you know, uh, Louie was a very outgoing guy when he got this WCW, he didn't, uh, come in and kind of quietly work his way into the locker room or, or anything or backstage. I mean, he was a very, uh, uh, forward guy in a positive way. You know, he'd come up and he'd greet you and he'd crack a joke. And he was, he was a very lighthearted guy. Um, and I, again, I don't, I don't want to pretend I knew him really well. I didn't, but the, the time that I spent around him backstage and working with him a little bit creatively, he was a very, uh, high energy, positive kind of, he reminded me kind of like, you know, the Chris Farley character that you would see on Saturday night live. He was always kind of cracking jokes and had that kind of demeanor about him. He was always light. If, if, if that makes sense, he was never 
crabby or in a dark mood or pissing and moaning or bitching about his money or any of that other kind of shit. And he was high a lot. So that might have had something to do with it. But he was he was an easy guy to work with. It's uh, it's interesting to see all this new influx of talent. You know, we saw gentleman Chris Adams in, in the first match. Now in the second match, Louis Spicoli and both Rick Martel, relative new additions to WCW. I guess, you know, on the heels of learning, hey, I've got to put together another show for TBS. I better get busy signing dudes. That was the big issue, you know. And again, I know I've, we've probably talked about this, and it might have been a long time ago now. We've been doing this podcast for closing in on two years now so i'm sure some of this i've covered before but again i think for people who are new listeners or even people perhaps that have heard me discuss this but not really pay too much attention to it because of it being out of context but here as we're looking at this show i think it's important for people to understand that i didn't want to do this show harvey schiller didn't want to do this show brad siegel didn't want to do this show. The only people that wanted, the only person that wanted to do this show, well, I will say people, would would be Ted Turner. He was determined to put it on. And Steve Burke. Was it Steve Burke or Bill Burke? I think it was Bill Burke. Bill Burke. Yeah, Bill Burke. Well, Bill wanted to do the show because, and Bill Burke came out and said, look, TBS cannot pay for it. We do keep in mind, this is the perfect storm this period of time, January 1998. We're coming off of 1997. 1997 was a blowout success, huge success for WCW and for Turner Broadcasting and for TNT. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, right about this time, took out a full page ad, not the Wall Street Journal, ABC Network took out a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal, basically trying to convince advertisers not to spend their money in professional wrestling because WCW had probably five of the top 10 hours. You know, we were, we were either number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, probably down to number eight. WCW had a huge footprint at that time. So things were going so well for us, but at the same time, you had the AOL Time Warner, and I can't remember the, the the timing of that, but you had the Time Warner and then the AOL merger or acquisition kind of on the horizon. And there was this huge internal um, commitment to improve everybody's bottom line, a.k.a. EBITDA, um, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and whatever. Um, and everybody was cutting costs because every every business unit – no, no matter what it was, whether it was Turner Home Video or WCW or CNN or the Atlanta Braves or whatever it was, every part of Turner Broadcasting was micromanaging their budgets and reallocating budgets and slashing budgets in order to reach what I believe was the, the, the goal of, a, of an 18% EBITDA to the bottom line. So each business unit had to, to achieve that. Well, at the same time, you know, everybody across the board in Turner, not just WCW, everybody's gutting their costs, trying to 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 reduce their expenses as as low as they could possibly be to show the largest EBITDA they could in their business units. Ted comes along and says, no, I want you to do this two-hour show on TBS. Well, Bill Burke, smart guy, immediately said, well, we can't afford it. Our budgets are set. You know, we're, we're, this is where we're at. We can't afford it. 
you know, nobody wanted to pay for it. Turner Broadcasting didn't want to allocate additional revenue to us to help offset the cost of producing the show. And in, in many cases, and this is what people just didn't understand, it wasn't just the cost of producing the show, which was significant, probably in the area of three hundred fifty to $450,000 uh, an episode, just hard costs. That didn't include you know, talent allocations travel. and things like that. That's just travel, production, freelancers, lights, insurance, all that kind of shit, right? Nobody wanted to pay for it. And ultimately, WCW had to pay for the show to put on Turner Broadcasting. And that's what really, really gutted us. More than anything else, more than bad booking, more than the finger poke of fucking doom, more than, you know, uh, guaranteed contract, all the all the nonsense that people who weren't a part of the decision-making process have talked about. You know, all the guys who, you know, they'd show up and they do a nitro and they go to some house shows and all of a sudden they're experts on the business of the wrestling business, particularly at this time. They weren't there. They had no idea what was happening and why it was happening and how it was happening. But we did. And we knew we were in trouble. And everybody, myself, now I wasn't as, and I have to take responsibility for this. Brad Siegel was very vocal about it. Brad was pissed because Brad was smart. Brad had a lot more experience than I did. Uh, when it came to network television, Brad knew that if we put on a two-hour show on Thursday, it was going to, going to dilute the Nitro show. You're just going to split the audience. Maybe not 100%. Maybe it won't be 50-50. But you're going to hurt your Monday night audience by having a second primetime show later in the week. And that's exactly what happened. So there you go. Do you think that still exists with WWE? Do you think, you know, if, if raw didn't exist or SmackDown didn't exist, whatever remained would have a bigger rating. Yep. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, not, don't necessarily want to comment a lot on WWE because they're hugely successful right now in many respects. But if you look at their television ratings, they're flatlining. If you look at their house show business, it's pretty abysmal. If, and, and then you have to look at a, a lot of the other you know, parts of the business that goes along with, you know, low attendance and low ratings, that being licensing and merchandising, all those things suffer when people don't come to your events and don't watch your shows. We talked about that last week. Um, I think they've reached kind of their peak. They're going to do their 2.1, 2.2, 2.3 million viewers on Monday. They're going to do their 2.3, 2.4, 2.5 million viewers on Friday. That's going to fluctuate throughout the year based on the time of year. Uh, right now is going to be a good time of year for for both of those uh, brands on, on WWE, both Raw and SmackDown, because there's not really a lot of sports competition going on right now. That'll change once the NBA playoffs kick into gear, the weather starts getting warmer, the sun stays out later, and fewer and fewer people are watching television. I think the summertime is going to be tough on SmackDown more than Raw. But they'll 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 hold steady in that two point one two. I mean, go back and look at their ratings for over the last five years. They've been steadily declining, but at a pretty slow rate. They're losing five percent, eight percent, ten percent a year of their audience, which sounds horrible, and it's not preferable. It's not something anybody wants to have happen. But when you compare that kind of attrition uh, in your numbers to the attrition that people normally see across the boards on cable and network television, it's still pretty healthy. 
So they're 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 not, you know, they're not in triage. But I think the fact that they've got so much content out there, you forgot about NXT. Now you've got three hours of Monday Night Raw, two hours of NXT, and two hours of of SmackDown. That's seven hours of content. And it's really hard to make it feel unique. What drives you to have to watch any one of those shows? You know, they haven't really built, they meaning WWE, hasn't really built a John Cena, a Rock, a Steve Austin, you know, a Hulk Hogan, a Ric Flair. There isn't that, you know, one big draw that you have to tune in to see for any of the brands. There's a lot of amazing talent, but they're all, for the most part, you know, the top, top talents in WWE are all kind of equal in many respects. They're not necessarily positioned that way, but I think that WWE has done a great job over the last 15 years, 20 years of making WWE the star. And the talent is a supporting cast member. And I think now that you've got seven hours of content out there, you don't have a huge star like you did in the past. You don't have your Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, the names that I just went through. You don't have any of those guys that are really driving it because they've captured the imagination of the audience. You've got a lot of people that everybody likes, but nobody that's really a standout star. And I think because of the number of hours of content that they have on the air right now, they, they are suffering. I mean, I lived through it. I, I watched it happen with Thunder. I really, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't believe it was going to happen. I, I won't say I didn't believe it. I didn't understand the impact and just how badly it would affect Nitro. I knew it would. I just didn't understand the magnitude of it. And but after you know three or four months of of Thunder, believe me, I'm an expert. We should mention we're seeing yet two more new talent to the WCW show here. We've got Tenzon and O'Hara. Both of these are new Japan talents. Of course, Tenzon, one of the original members of NWO Japan. I think Masahiro Chono joined in December of 96 and Tenzon will join a few weeks later, sometime in probably January, February, 1997. So he's been running roughshod over new Japan as NWO Japan for a while. And, uh, here's Tenzon. Uh, taking on Ohara, two New Japan talents. This is our third match here on the show, I think. So we've had Randy Savage and Chris Adams, Rick Martell and Louis Piccoli, and two new talent here. So the only sort of carryover talent from WCW the past several years, Randy Savage and the other five performers, brand new to the show. Yep, we're we're trying, and, and there again is Sonny Ono, and I didn't realize just how much camera time that we gave Sonny Ono over this this period of time, and Sonny has done a, such a fantastic job of making the most of it. I think he's more popular today uh, out there in 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 the world uh, when it comes to wrestling than he was even when he was on television. He's all over the place. He just got back from Japan. This guy goes over to Japan to be a part of a Fuji TV special kind of uh, highlighting or honoring Akira Hokuto and her her time in professional wrestling as well as her time in WCW and the actually the Fuji TV crew came over and did an interview with me early uh, uh mid mid December Sonny flies back over there does this big special over in Fuji TV flies home and has triple bypass surgery like 2 days later he's crazy man. He's, he's just going nonstop 
And here we are 37 minutes into the show without commercials, of course. And we're seeing another nitro clip. It feels yeah, like business it feels like WCW Saturday night part two. Yep. Yep. Trying to, especially, and again, you know, if this would have been a one hour show, right. You know, which, it, you know, it's, it's funny. We've been watching two and three hour shows now for so long in wrestling really since nitro started it, um, back in whatever it was, 95, 96, uh, is when the whole two hour and three hour formats first reared their ugly head. But we become so accustomed to it that the idea of a one hour show is like, well, how could you do a wrestling show in an hour? Yeah. How could, how could that even work? But had this show been a one hour show and had it felt decidedly different than nitro and by doing it as a one hour show, we could have done for, for cost efficiencies. Uh, we, we could have done probably, three hours at a TV, you know, first hour live, two hours tape so that we could have reduced our costs and, and not overexpose so much talent and not have been re- so reliant on nitro clips and cross promoting. Cause I, you know, again, I know I've had a lot of coffee here, Conrad, so I hope you, you can bear with me and the listeners. I apologize when I get up early in the morning and I pound a pot of coffee, I just, my mouth starts flapping. I can't keep up with it, but if we would have formatted the show to be a one hour instead of three hours, think of the amount of money that we would have saved on production. Think of the amount of money that we would have been able to save on talent. Um, I may not have been forced to bring in a Bret Hart or, or spend some of the huge amounts of money that we spent to get some of that top talent. A one hour format could have made all the difference in the world in WCW now that I think about it. But everybody wanted the Nitro success. I think you guys started the, uh, the, the two hour thing probably in like May or June of 96. And then it's probably, when do you think it's that you guys would start doing the third hour? Was that 97? I, you know, I think it was. And that was, again, that was, that was handed down to me from Turner. I didn't want to do a third hour. Believe me. I didn't want to do a third hour. Um, as we watch Chris Jericho coming through the man cave or whatever the hell that is. And then we've got the flock, just always depressed, looking miserable, like somebody just shitting their coffee. I, like I actually like that. I, I like the flock. Uh, <laughs> Chris Jericho here showing up with uh, a little dry cleaning. By the way. Uh, oh, then he must have had his he must have had his ticky with him. Oh yeah, no ticky, no laundry. By the way, because he, he got his ticky, he had his ticky. Chris had his ticky with him. It's a shirt over at ericbischoff.com. Chris uh, has a ticky. <laughs> the backstory to what Eric's referring to there is uh, famously when and Eric and uh, Jericho were uh, at odds at the end of his WCW run about you know would he resign or would he not resign. Bischoff said something like no ticky, no laundry about dropping the TV title to, uh, to Conan. So yeah, nice, nice little pull around there. By the way, ericbischoff.com. So many fun shirts over there. Uh, we do have a new one that says make wrestling unpredictable again. And the word unpredictable, uh, looks like it's uh cut out letters using a ransom note, but my favorite is Bish please, which has your cartoon face straight out of catering. That's hilarious, especially for a fat guy like me. 
but the one I think you're most embarrassed about is, uh, it looks like a hand-drawn sign and it says Eric's donkey show where the big boys play, because you introduced a whole new generation of folks to a Tijuana donkey show. And people were Googling that in droves, by the way, do not Google that if you haven't already, but do go check out ericbischoff.com. See some of those new shirts. Chris had great hair. I have to hand it to him. Looking at him there, you know, I mean, I had really great hair. Still do, as a matter of fact, just shorter. But Chris, you know, I like to say I had the best hair in professional wrestling throughout the late 90s. I honestly think I'd have to tip my hat to Chris Jericho. That pains me to say. The words were getting stuck in my throat as I was trying to form them. But I do think it's probably true. God damn, I hate to admit that. Son of a bitch. What a fun match this is going to be. Chris Jericho in the ring. Of course, he was bringing the jacket out to apologize to Dave Penzer for ripping his jacket when he flipped out. So we're going to see sort of a new version of Chris Jericho here in 1998 when he really comes into his own. And here he's taking on the 13-time world champion, the nature boy Ric Flair himself. Uh, years later, these guys would have a, a pretty high-profile match at a SummerSlam. It's kind of cool to see him here uh, on Thunder. Where is that robe? As we speak today, where does that robe hang? It's in a barber shop in New York. Really? A barber in New York has it. He thinks it's worth 50 grand, so he's going to die with it. What do you think it's worth? Yeah, it's worth about 15,000. 15. I mean, there's, there's a guy in Virginia who'd pay you 20 for it, but it's worth 15. Might be a guy in South Carolina who'd pay you 17 for it, but it's worth 15. Is there like a blue book of wrestling memorabilia? I mean, how do you know this stuff? I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning you, but I'm like, off the f- top of your fucking head, you know what this thing is worth. How do you know all that? I've bought and sold more of those than anybody. I mean, what I, about I, belts too? I mean, a lot of wrestling memorabilia are just like the high end stuff. There's about five collectors in America who will buy the high end stuff, whether it's a Ric Flair robe or some other piece of ring used, you know, gear. Um, and then there's, there's about five guys who will buy the belts. You know, there's one in New York, there's one in Louisiana, there's me, there's a guy in Florida. So when you sort of get in those little underground collector realms, even if you don't know who those guys are, cause some people don't want their name out there, you certainly know, um, you know, where they are that they'll just say, Oh, it's in New York or, Oh, it's in Boston or, Oh, it's in Louisiana or, Oh, it's in Alabama or, Oh, it's in Florida. There's a handful of high-end collectors who will say, Hey, it's worth this. And those guys sort of dictate the price. And really I'm one of the biggest sort of influencers of what a Ric Flair robe was worth just because I've bought and sold so many. I want to ask you more about that, but as we're watching this watch along, and by the way, if you're out there listening to the audience, you know, if you have a chance, I know if you're driving, you can't do it, but if you get home, get to your office, whatever, over your lunch break, you should really you know, go to wwenetwork.com. No, I'm not chilling, but just go to wwenetwork.com because it's the only place you can get some of this great footage and see what you know the mid to late 90s was all about. Go back and watch this match. This so far, 
This is the first time I've seen this since we shot it back in 1998. So it's been a, it's been a minute. This is a great match. Yes, it is. This really is a great match. So there's kind of like a, a collector's cartel. Like you're all kind of underground. And is, like, is there, a, is there a collector dirt sheet? No. Like, is there a Dave Meltzer of collecting shit that you know, runs around lying to people and making shit up and raising the prices of things? And I mean, is, is, is there some kind of underground dirt sheet? There is not. Uh, but what you do have is um, that same network of guys will buy and sell and trade with each other a lot. So when somebody gets something new, like I'll, I'll routinely once a month, just get a random text that says, Hey, got anything new? Because they've got something new and they want me to ask them, do you have anything new? And then when they do, they can't wait to show me their new thing. And once they show me their new thing, they may or may not have bought it with me in mind thinking, I don't want this, but I know he will. And if I get this, maybe he'll give me that other thing that he said he would never trade. And that that's pretty common. Why don't you buy Hulk Hogan's Viper? I saw that. And I think that would be awesome, but I don't know what the fuck I would do with it. Cause I was like, man, you drive it. We could like recreate the ticker tape parade with you in that thing. And, and Mrs. B and that would be great. We have Cassio dress up like mean Gene. He's got the hair for it now. It would be great. But then I'm like, I don't really know what I would do with that. But I did see it's going to auction soon. No, you should buy that. You could have a blast with that. And it would be a great investment because down the road. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a hell of an investment. I was surprised when he told my Rick Flair's just chopping the hell out of Jericho. I was surprised when Hulk told me he was going to put that up for auction. I went, wow, that's – I mean, he donated it. I can't remember what the charity is. But, but it, he, yeah, I, it is for charity for sure. Um, he donated it to charity and their action. Their, the charity is the one that's actually auctioning it off, not Hulk Hogan. But, yeah, I think that thing would look good on you. See you and Megan cruising around Huntsville. You know what? I just realized smart tax move by Mr. Balea, because, uh, if you do it by the end of the year, you get to account it on your taxes, quite the donation there. He, he must've had a good year. <laughs> yeah. You could say that.
We've got uh, Ming in the ring and coming out next. Boy, does this entrance look familiar? Have you seen that before? The green laser light in the tunnel. Been there, done that. Hideous. God, I hate that set. God almighty, that's a horrible set. God damn, Eric. I can just imagine back in this day, you had the same the same reaction like okay i understand we had to get this show on the road but now that we drew a good rating and we sold it out can we reinvest in a decent fucking set oh that set is horrible that looks like indie show stuff i know i know that you're not familiar with it but some of our younger listeners will be it looks like the aggro crag it was a nickelodeon show called guts and the kids would have to climb, scale this mountain at the end. It was like the big thing, the aggro crag. And eventually they would replace it with the mega crag and then the super aggro crag. But the original aggro crag is what this looks like to me and reminds me of. And it's just this weird mountain looking thing. And I don't know. That's probably, that's probably where whoever designed this That's probably where they sold, stole it from. So we were spending a lot of time at the Disney MGM studios. Sure. And that's where they filmed a lot of the Nickelodeon stuff. And we were spending a lot of time at the Universal Studios. I think Universal Studios is where they filmed um, the Nickelodeon stuff. That's right. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm, I bet you that's where the – oh, look at that standing sidekick by the giant. Pretty decent for a giant. I will say he was so athletic. We've talked about that before. As big as he is, and of course, you know, he had – people in his ear like Hulk and others who had, you know, worked with Andre and remembered Andre, including Ric Flair and others, you know, were giving Paul white giant, you know, tips and how to work like a giant and not sell and not go down easily. We're seeing that here with Ming. Ming's just chopping him. He's chopping him alternatively from his kicking him in the legs, chopping him in the chest, trying to get him off his feet. He's probably laid about 15 or 20 blows into him so far. Finally, Giant goes down on his knees and takes a kick to the head. But it took a long time to get him down. So whenever you would see Paul White, especially in the beginning, he wanted to do a lot more athletic stuff. I mean, his instinct and his desire as a a green performer was to come in and showcase all the amazing things that he could do athletically, especially for being such a big guy. But for the most part, he was, you know, convinced not to do that. So you have a tendency to see Paul in his early career kind of doing the big man giant gimmick, which obviously he was a big man. It wasn't a gimmick, but he was so much more capable of doing so many more things athletically that when you do see something like him just standing there and picking up and throwing out a sidekick, it's really impressive. He was so athletic. Yeah, we should mention the old, uh, the old phrase is be a giant. You know, if you're a giant, be a giant and, you know, don't do moon salts and, and all that, that he could definitely do and top rope drop kicks, but he, he could do a kip up. He could lay flat on his back and without using his hands to push himself up off the mat, he could lay flat on his back and just using, you know, his, his legs, kip himself up into an upright position without using his hands, unless you're a gymnast or an amateur wrestler who's probably under 145 pounds. I challenge anybody to do that. Send me a video, send it to me on Twitter. If you can do a kip up without using your hands, send it to me. Now imagine a guy that's over 400 pounds doing it. It's freaky. Up next, Steve Mongo McMichael. I do want to mention that, uh, 
you guys were in Huntsville two weeks after this. I was at that show. Maybe we'll get to watch that sometime. You hear Kevin Sullivan in the background. I do. I thought that was your dog. Was that your dog? Yeah. That's my joke though. On Tony's show, whenever his dogs are barking in the background or mine, we just say that, oh, that's Kevin Sullivan yelling. He's got a number on the socks or something. It's very inside baseball for people who listen to all my shit. Hey, let me talk about uh, Jimmy Hart for a minute. Jimmy just had a birthday. Uh, I can't believe this is a real number. Uh, but this past week on January 1st, Jimmy turned 77 years old. Amazing. And he's still working. He's still working at a high level. He's still mentally as sharp as ever. Uh, you, you could not tell that this person is 70 years old and it came up at my house on new Year's. So, uh, I showed Megan a picture of him when he was sort of in his prime with the WWF, probably 86, 87. And, uh, she said, when is that picture from? And I said, 35 years ago. And she said, okay, what's he look like now? And I pretended to pull up another picture. And then I said, oh, here he is now. She said, oh my God, he looks the exact same. (laughs) But no, in real life, he does. He's the same. Like you could not tell that it's been 35 years when you, when you see Jimmy Hart. No. And this is kind of a big move here to have Steve Mongo McMichael bailing out of the ring and, and hitting Bill Goldberg. Bill Goldberg was, he was on his, his, his ascension at this point. Still very, very green. They were supposed to have a match at Starcade, of course. And, uh, he debuted in September of 97, uh, destroying Hugh Morris. Here we are in January. So very, very early Goldberg here, but this match has got to be a little bit like the blind leading the blind. It is, but it's not that bad for what it is. Again, it's not a classic, you know, five-star Tokyo Dome match or anything like that. But you're talking about here. You've got Steve McMichael, Super Bowl champion. One of the best in his position at that time. You got Bill Goldberg, you know, former Atlanta Falcon, you know, not a big name in the NFL, but still very, very credible, very green. And these are two big, powerful guys. These guys should not be having, look at this. What the hell was that? That was a pretty sweet move by Bill Goldberg going in for a submission on Steve Mongo McMichael. And this was back when Bill was beginning to to dabble in MMA and Muay Thai. So he incorporated that into his match. I thought that was pretty good. So, no, it was. it's not like a five-star match. It's not a, a technically classic match. But I find it to be very entertaining. I think this is a good match, especially on television. Doesn't look green. Steve looks actually pretty good here. And so does Bill. By the Charles, way, Robinson, Charles Robinson looks fantastic. Talk about a guy that never ages. Yeah. Benjamin Button of wrestling right there. Recapping here, Chris Adams over Randy Savage, Rick Martell over Louis Piccoli, Tenzon over O'Hara, Rick Flair over Chris Jericho, the giant over Ming. And now Goldberg and Mongo. So even though we've had a lot of clips of Nitro, we've still had so far one, two, three, four, five. This is match number six on the show. Six matches in less than 59 minutes. That's pretty good, brother. That's a lot of action. 11 matches in total on this show. And and by the way, the, the rating would build from hour one to hour two as we're cruising over there into it. You know, so far, if you're watching, we're. 58 minutes and 26 seconds in, uh, but with commercials, we're definitely in the second hour. 
The first hour did a 3.75 rating. The second hour is going to do a 4.25. The third hour is going to do a 4.03. The overall rating is a 4.02 rating with a 599 share. But how about this? It's head to head with NBC's unbelievable lineup. And in this era, it really was unbelievable. They would start the night with friends and then go into Seinfeld and then ER. What a fucking lineup they had. I mean, Thursdays, NBC dominated, and now you're trying to go head to head with them and held your own, man. A 4.02 rating. How many wrestling companies will kill for that rating today? All of them. And, and let's put that 4.02 in perspective. Now, again, this is 1998, so I'm not going to pretend I remember exactly how many households one rating point represented. I am guessing it was just under a million at that point. And by the way, that, that number fluctuates over time or has fluctuated over time. It's gotten bigger and bigger, bigger as cable has gotten more and more, uh, has gotten broader and is in more homes. The numbers that cable reflects have changed. So I'm guessing that there was about 980,000 viewers per rating point. Um, yeah, I'd say just about hell. You could watch, you could watch Raw, SmackDown, and Next, and barely be able to beat that number combined. So yeah, it was a big number. It was over close to four million viewers. Wrestling is hot here. By the way, we we sort of freestyled earlier, and I thought maybe they went in late 97 to three hours, three hours on nitro became a regular every week thing on January 26th. So just a couple of weeks after this is when it would become a regular deal to have a three hour show. And uh, Meltzer would say the decision was made largely because the WF ratings were showing significant growth. As soon as nitro went off the air over the last several weeks, it used to be that no significant percentage of Nitro viewers would switch to Raw when Nitro would go off the air, but that seems to be no longer the case. With Mike Tyson becoming a regular on Raw and no doubt his appearance being held until the last quarter hour of the show, Raw, at least at first, would be expected to do some strong numbers if left unopposed. Of course, doing five hours every week could and probably at some point will lead to overexposure, whether it will be in a few months or a few years. Overexposure is very much a cumulative thing not something immediate and wrestling is very hot right now, but this is no different than a dozen other times in wrestling and no more over now than at any point in those times, it's a cyclical business. And this is an up cycle overexposure has killed many of the biggest up cycles of the past. And the problem is if, when we see the slide beginning by the time we recognize it, it'll already be too late because the snowball going downward doesn't reverse. So once again, Mr. Meltzer trying to make himself sound so smart opens up that diarrhea by saying the decision to move three hours, Nitro to three hours was made because of WWE's increase in ratings. Like Dave Meltzer was in the room with Ted Turner when Ted Turner and, and the people within you know the executive committee were discussing this. That's how Dave got that inside information. He knew specifically that the only reason, according to him, his own words, the reason why Nitro expanded to three hours was because of the success that WWF was beginning to have. 
they're right there. Those were Dave's words. I paraphrased some of them, I'm sure. Those were Dave's words, Dave's words, not mine. He's full of shit. And, and anybody that reads him and believes him and doesn't recognize just how full of shit he is, is only wasting 12 bucks a month and doing themselves a disservice, walking around with a head full of bullshit that they think is inside information. That had nothing to do with why Nitro was expanded to three hours. It had everything to do with, wait a minute, we're spending close to 500 grand an episode for, for two hours. We can get three hours for the same amount of money. Let's do three hours. It was simply a matter of maximizing the, the expense and getting the most out of the expense that we had. It had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in the WWF. Just one more example of the nonsense that is known as Dave Meltzer. We see the uh, Steiner brothers in here right now. I take it on buff Bagwell and buff is teaming with Conan. Uh, that feels like a, a weird pairing. We should mention, cause I know you're going to love this. You want to guess what the highest rated segment of this entire show, what peaked to the rating? Do you want to guess? Hmm. No, but please tell me. I can't believe this, this is real. It's the replay of Eric Bischoff and Larry Zabisco from Starcade. Well, fuck yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't know that that was you know one of the choices. I would have picked that instantly. Come on. Uh, ah. What killed the show? The main event: Diamond Dallas Page and Kevin Nash. People left in droves, and apparently Hogan thought that might happen. Uh, because, uh, it's written in the observer Hogan did nix the idea of working dark matches at all the Thursday shows against page and had this match switched to sting. So, uh, they're, they're, you guys are promoting and selling out arenas, promising a dark match rematch, which makes sense of Hulk Hogan and sting. But, uh, yeah, Hogan had the opportunity or was pr presented the idea of, Hey, let's do it with DDP. He just got hot and Mandy Savage made him a made man last year and that doesn't work for me, brother, according to the observer. Hulk Hogan didn't work dark matches, never was going to work dark matches. Occasionally would if he was in the right mood. But again, it had nothing to do with Hulk nixing the idea. It just, he was, it was never part of his deal to work dark matches. Steiners do not look good in white. I have to say, and I know normally don't like to comment too much on ring attire because it's all subjective, but. I'm looking at the Steiners in these white singlets and I'm just not quite understanding why they would do that. Not into it. No, not at all. We should mention you guys are on a march to the sold out pay-per-view, which I think most people remember for, uh, Kevin Nash and the giant and Ric Flair and uh, Bret Hart. Lots of fun stuff on this 1998 version of sold out compared to 1997, which was just brutal. It was not, it was fun. It was different. Come on. Oh, go listen to it in the archives. You making out with chicks. Come on, dude. That was fun. Can you imagine now? Can you imagine how much fun we'd have with that now? Oh God. We'd be slipping them like blue chew and or they'd be slipping it to me. I should say they'd need, they'd need to. 
There you go. Oh, how, yeah, Macho Man Randy Savage snapping to a Slim Jim, brother. When's the last time you saw Slim Jim in a gas station? Have you have you paid any attention to him in a while? I have not. Dude, they got Randy Savage all over it again. Do they really? Dude, it's a cartoon, like a, a, an illustration on it. It is outstanding. They have like, they've even got like a, I guess it's a bigger one or maybe it's spicier. I don't know. I don't eat Slim Jims very often, but. It says this is the savage Slim Jim. And on the box, it's got him with the big glasses and the whole day. It's fantastic. And, you know, it's funny as we bring up food products and talents on this show. We're looking at Lee Marshall right now as he's sitting there with Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. I'm sure you know this. And, and probably most people do that are listening to this. But for those of you that don't, do you know that Lee Marshall was for decades and Possibly still is the voice of Tony the Tiger. Great. That was that was Lee Marshall. You know who did not say that Lee Marshall was great? Dave Meltzer. He won the uh according to the readers of the Wrestling Observer, uh they they would do a poll every year and, and year end awards and worst wrestling announcer for like, I don't know, half a dozen years in a row, Lee Marshall. Well, I, I and I heard that Dave Meltzer was nominated for the person <laughs> most likely to be accused of sniffing bicycle seats. Oh, so gosh. What, what, what difference does oh, that make? <laughs> what difference does it make? What's the matter? Who's got, bi- got your tongue? Who's, whose bicycle seat was it? Just hy- Is it Stacey Keebler's hypothetically? Because I can't even be mad at him. Oh. <laughs> uh, Here we good see. So again, this is, uh, the first episode of thunder. We started with, I don't know, 10 minutes worth of clips from nitro. Now we're an hour and eight minutes in, of course, without the commercials, you know, we're, we're misleading a little bit. We're probably more than an hour and a half in, but now we're going to show a full match from pay-per-view. If you were call it that it's Eric Bischoff and Larry Zabisco star K 97, you know, this to me is just very apparent. This is the B show. Lots of clips. It was certainly positioned that way and it shouldn't have been, but it was. And again, you know, I look back and I'm all kidding aside. I'm trying to be entertaining and have some fun with this and be as outrageous as I can be at seven o'clock in the morning. But, um, looking back at this now, there were so many things that, we did wrong strategically, not creatively, strategically with regard to thunder that, uh, I don't know. I hate to keep beating it up. You know, it was what it was. Like I said, none of us were really supporting it. None of us wanted to do it. We all knew it was going to probably tip us over and it did, but we, we put our best foot forward, did the best we could with what we had. Now this is, this is a replay from the pay-per-view, right? Yes. This is a replay We're watching from Stargate 97. This is not new live content. I can't believe it, but you're, even though you charged people for this a few weeks prior, maybe 10 days prior. In fact, here you go. We're going to, uh, we're going to give it to you boys and girls. Yeah. Not a smart move. Not a smart move. With 2020, 2020 hindsight. That's like 40, 40 hindsight for those of you that don't have a calculator handy. 
Fuck, I'm getting vertigo looking at these shots of the lights. What do, what do you think of uh, Larry Zabisco and his performance here at Starcade 97? <laughs> I think he did fantastic for what he had to work with, for God's sake. I mean, number one, I wasn't a wrestler. Uh, this was like the first time I think I'd ever been in the ring uh, to, to any extent other than getting picked up and thrown and shit like that. Um, and I had a fractured uh, knee, my left my left knee. I had fractured when Larry and I were working out about 10 days before this, maybe less, maybe a week before. We were working out at the power plant one night, and, uh, you know, Larry was an amateur wrestler. I was an amateur wrestler. So while we were kind of laying out the match and kind of rehearsing what we were going to be doing and things like that, intermittently throughout, you know, the evening, we would be fucking around with each other, trying to take each other down and shit like that. And Larry did a leg dive on me, single leg dive, and uh, on my left leg, and just kind of locked it in position and drove, and it ended up fracturing my kneecap. So my left knee in this match was pretty heavily taped, and I didn't have a lot of – my balance wasn't that great. So we had to work around that. I think Larry did a great, a great job, you know, to make me look even non-vomit-inducing in, in terms of the match. Uh, is a credit to Larry because I had no experience at the time. All I had, I had Scott Hall tell me, you want to get your heat, keep stepping out of the ring, stall, stall, stall. It'll get people pissed off. And it did. It's so weird to go back and, and look at this. I'm sure it's, it's gotta be surreal from your perspective to see the 1997 version of you at the biggest pay-per-view ever like i don't know it feels like uh it's gotta be out of body experience bizarre uh, it didn't feel that bizarre i i, I mean I, I was pretty comfortable doing it with the exception of you know the fact that i didn't know what the hell i was doing right <laughs> I mean, but aside from that it was it was Quite a lot of fun, actually. Did you see the speed on that left hand of mine? That left hand, the left one, it, it, the left oh, beautiful front front leg round kick on that uh, again left leg, bad knee and all. This is outstanding. I look fantastic in here. Look at my hair. Check out the hair. Boom! I throw a punch. The hair just flies. Boom! Makes it look even faster than it really was, and it was fast. It was right now. Larry knows he is in deep shit. He he's too old. He's too slow. I've got the, the, the distinct advantage of being a far better martial artist than Larry Zabisco ever thought he could be. Although Larry has the experience in terms of, you know, ring time in a wrestling ring. I've got the experience in the upper hand when it comes to kickboxing and, and time in the ring as a fighter. So this is this is going to be an interesting matchup here. Boom! Big right hand! Oh, yes! Right off the side of Larry Zabisco's noggin. Big... Oh, I'm feeling so... You can see it in my eyes. I'm just so proud of that right hand. The left one is deadly, but the right one scares the fuck out of me. It's so fast. It's, it hits so hard, it scares even me. <laughs> what? No, I'm serious. It's just fun to see you get excited about. Boom! Boom! Another kick to the face. Larry Zabisco is frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. Now here, I'm, I'm, I'm to the point now where I said to Scott, I said, Scott, I step out of the ring. 
I got to confer with Scott. I said, Scott, this is too easy. These people are going to be pissed off. If I just go out here and continue to beat the hell out of Larry Zabisco the way I'm doing it right now, they're going to get bored. And Scott says, do the do the Karate Kid Kung Fu thing. That'll make them laugh. They'll like that. That was Scott's advice to me right there. I said, okay, I'll do that. I'm here to entertain the audience. I'm going to give them their money's worth. So I got Bret Hart in here as the referee. Because if anybody knows about crooked referees, that'll be Bret Hart. Oh, what is Larry Zabisco slapping me like a bitch? What is that? Because I complained to Bret Hart. Bret Hart goes, I don't know. Fuck, just slapped you in the head. What are you supposed to do? Quit your bitching. I'm thinking, Brett, I just gave you a hell of a check. You could do a little better than this. Right, Brett? Right? Come on. Okay, now I'm stalking Larry again. Ooh. Oh, did you see that kick? Back leg round kick right to the side of the head. Takes Larry Zabisco completely off his feet. He had no idea that kick was coming. No idea at all. God damn, that was good. Uh oh. Oh, this is bullshit. He's pulling my hair, ref. God damn, Bret Hart. Damn you, Bret Hart. He can obviously see Larry Zabisco's pulling my hair, grinding my face into the mat. He's not even giving him a count of 10. Now he's choking me for crying out loud. That's a choke. That's illegal. That is illegal in any wrestling ring anywhere in the world. You know, this is getting me hot now. I'm looking at this. Oh, another takedown. Head scissors by Larry Zabisco. This is so unfair. This is really, really unfair. The deck is stacked against me. Bret Hart is not doing his job as a referee. He's not calling it down the middle. Clearly, he saw not one, but now we're two chokes in after spending 15 minutes dragging me around the ring by my hair. Okay, now now, now, Larry and Brett are getting into it a little bit. Brett, Brett started to insert himself as a, as a referee, as he should. Larry almost busted a nut trying to pick me up to body slam me. And now he's going for the figure four. And I'm stiffening up my legs. I'm doing everything I can to avoid it. I know it's coming. I don't. Oh, my God. Here it goes. My left leg. The fractured knee of my left leg. Look what he's doing as I pull myself to the rope. Bret Hart forced to break the hold. Scott Hall on the edge of the ring, trying to give me some insight here, helping me out, trying to, oh, my left leg again. God damn it, Larry Zabisco, you are a bitch. I can't wait to see Larry again after watching this. That was bullshit. That left leg is taking some abuse, I'm telling you. Look at my hair, though. Fucking hair looks great, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Oh, Larry Zabisco comes from around the ring. Is that, oh, that was a horrible bump, Bischoff. You did not take that post well. Sissy. Should have hit that post a lot harder than that. That was bullshit. But I'm tired. I'm gassed. See, this is the best part of doing a watch along. You getting fired up doing commentary again. You should be behind the desk, dude. I, I, I can only get excited about my own matches. <laughs> <laughs> I only want to put me over. <laughs> I know how good I am. I got to let everybody else know how good I am. Oh, no. I'm going to take this opportunity because I don't get it very often. Now, obviously, I'm looking a little tired here. I've been taking a lot of abuse. I'm outside rolling around on the ring mat, trying to get my shit back together again after Larry Zabisco 
pulling my hair, choking me, not once, but twice, attacking that knee that he knows was fractured because I try to make my way up. I'm staggering. I'm starting. Oh, now Bret Hart's cutting me out. Okay. Now I got Scott Hall smartening me up here again. I'm getting this strategy from the bad guy. Did I just say that? Am I going to get sued? Probably. Larry Zabisco again, pulling the hair, pulling the hair. Bret Hart. Now, why did Bret stop him from throwing that punch? Oh, did you see that? Another beautiful, effortless, fluid, incredibly accurate kick to the side of the head. And a big right hand. Oh, those right hands are devastating. And now a kick to the head that missed the target. And a stomp. And another kick to the rib section. Another kick to the rib section. Bischoff is going to town on Larry Zabisco, who is wishing at this moment he was back in Shea Stadium with Bruno San Martino, San Martino because this is beginning to hurt. I am putting the hurt on one Larry Zabisco. Oh, sidekick right to the floating rib area where the most vulnerable part of the rib cage is the floating rib. Easy to break. Another big right hand working Larry Zabisco over on the ropes. Larry is lost. He does not know what to do. He doesn't know what hit him. Those kicks to the face are driving him crazy. He can't see him coming. He can't stop him. The right hand is devastating. The left working the body, working the top of the head. Now to the rib section again. A beautiful kick. Another beautiful kick. Oh, my God. Conrad, are, are you noticing the accuracy and the speed of these kicks? Uh, it's unmatched. It's unparalleled. You should it's have been... fucking uncanny. It's just amazing how good I really was. Knee to the top of the head. That was a beautiful knee. And those right hands are, I mean, those are world-class right hands. And now I'm blowed up. I'm about ready to fall over. The only thing that's not looking horrible on me right now is my hair. Everything else is exhausted. I look like a tree getting ready to fall down. Oh, now Zabisco. He's got his wind. He was rope-a-doping me. Big right hand again. Lands. That was a bullshit kick. He tried to kick me in the balls and he missed. Uh-oh. Four arms to the top of the head. Now I'm in trouble. Uh-oh. Vertical suplex. Down goes Bischoff. Down goes Bischoff. This is crazy. Or as they say now, cray cray. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun, Conrad. I'm having a blast. Ooh, swinging neck breaker. Now I'm in deep shit. Larry Zabisco has me in the center of the ring. I'm staring up at the lights. Once again, goes for the hair. As Bret Hart stands there with his hands on his hips like it's no big deal. Now I'm hanging upside down in the corner. Scott Hall jumps in, takes a right hand of the chops. Bret Hart now trying to get some control over the ring. Bret Hart's got his hands full. And now Scott Hall's reaching in his pants to pull out his junk. No, it's a foreign object. It's a foreign object. He's loading the boot. The boot is loaded. The boot is loaded. And now as I make my way up. I go to kick him in the head, and the goddamn thing flew out of my foot before they made contact. It's fucking crazy, right? And I still knocked him out. That's the kind of speed and power that I possessed in that left leg. That not only did Scott Hall load the boot, but it wasn't necessary. 
evidenced by the fact that that gimmick flew out of my boot before I even made contact. Therefore, I didn't cheat. I won this thing fair and square. Larry Zabisco is out cold. And he's not counting or anything. It's just, there you go. Oh, Brad Hart, what the fuck? Brad, God, God. Brad Hart sucker punches me right in the chops. What the hell? Down goes Hall. Hall coming in to try to, to, to try to make some sense of this chaos. Bret Hart is out of control. He is out of control. That's what happens when you bring a Canadian to Florida. They just go nuts. I'm down here in Tampa. I'm driving around the beach in Clearwater. These Canadians down here are crazy this time of year. So there you go. There's the finish. I got to tell you, this was the, uh, it's the highlight of the show for me so far. You're getting all fired up watching your old stuff. And this was the highlight of, uh, most people watching at home. This is the highest rating of the night. What we're watching right now. As it should have been. Come on. You got Eric Bischoff in the ring with Bret Hart and Larry Zabisco, Scott Hall. Come on. Did, uh, oh, wait a minute. How did he give him the match? How did, how did Bret Hart give him that match? You were disqualified. For what? He kicked him in the head with a gimmick. The gimmick never, it never made contact with him. The gimmick flew out of my foot long before the foot made contact with the head. That was bullshit. It was in the uh, script, brother. That was bullshit. I should have won that match. I did win that match. I don't care what Bret Hart says. Hypothetically, what was the gimmick? That he put in my boot? Yeah. It was just a... Uh, I don't know what the material was inside, but it was wrapped in uh, gaff tape. Yeah. Duct tape to look silver to kind of look, if, if the camera caught it, like metal. But it clearly wasn't heavy enough because it went, it rocketed out of my boot the minute I got my foot about three inches up off the ground. Bing! Shot into the 12th, 12th row. Here we see Mike today. What in front of the aggro cracks at? What color did you say the gimmick was? It was like, it was like gaff tape silver or something, if I remember. Nah, that sucks. The, the gimmick should have been rose gold. Here's the announcement we've been uh, waiting for. Steven Singer is releasing a brand new color of his famous 24 karat gold dip roses for Valentine's day. And the new color is the most requested color by passionate rose collectors and fans. Are you ready? The brand new color for 2020 is rose. That's right. A rose, rose, a rose, gold, gold, rose, a rose, gold, rose His popular fully dipped classic gold. Rose now comes deeply dipped in rose gold. Picture a long stem American beauty rose preserved and completely dipped in a pink, pink gold finish, which is called rose gold. That's right. The same lifetime guarantee, the same fast and free shipping, same unbeatable customer service, just with a brand new look. Steven's rose gold rose collection starts at only 69 bucks. Add something new to a previous bouquet or start a new one with a new classic rose gold rose. Go now and see it for yourself. Online at IHateStevenSinger.com or visit Steven in his showroom at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philadelphia. Real roses, real jewelers, real gold, all at the perfect price. IHateStevenSinger.com and everybody loves rose gold in 2020. Go check it out. IHateStevenSinger.com.
By the way, do you know how they make rose gold? No. They take yellow gold and they put a little bit of copper in there. And that brings the red tin out. And and Rolex in their watches says, Hey, we don't we don't want to do that. So they put a little bit of platinum in theirs and they call their rose gold ever rose gold. But literally everybody has been on this rose gold kick for the last ten years. It's taken over, you know, jewelry and watches and fashion. Rose gold is where it's at. And a, a, a rose gold rose never goes out of fashion. I hate Steven singer.com has your hookup. Just 69 bucks free shipping. How do you beat this? Just in time for Valentine's day. Check it out. I hate Steven singer.com. Larry's obviously pissed off <clears throat> about something here. Well, he's talking about sure. how he beats you from pillar to post and you had, uh, all this other. All these other shenanigans. Is that what he's saying? He didn't have to put up with this shit. He's wrestled in front of the Japan and the president of the United States and the Kings of Samoa real royalty. And he got to put up with this kind of shit from you, Scott Hall. You were still in school, picking your nose when I was selling out arenas and I changed wrestling history. Did you hear that? I once wrestled Bruno San Martino in August. of <laughs> Over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I heard it once or twice. So he's going to change uh, the new world odor for life at Sold Out. So we've transferred the heat off of you and on to Scott Hall, and that'll be our Sold Out match. We should mention this uh, this Sold Out show, which I actually thought was pretty good. And um, there's a lot of matches on it, but the main event is Lex Luger and Randy Savage. The real main event, at least for my money was Bret Hart and Ric Flair, but underneath that Kevin Nash and the giant Ray trailer and the Steiner brothers taking on Conan, Scott Norton and buff Bagwell, Larry Zabisco in there with Scott Hall, Booker T in there with Rick Martel, Chris Jericho and Ray Mysterio for the cruiserweight title, Chris Benoit and Raven and Raven's rules match. And then we start the show with an eight man tag. Uh, with the, uh, a whole host of luchadors, including La Parca and psychosis and Hooventude, all your favorites. I think we've done a whole show on that in the archives. So go check that out. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's lots of uh, full episodes on there, but great clips as well. So if you're looking for a specific moment from the show that you want to share with a friend or family member, or the wrestling person in your life, it's probably on our YouTube. Uh, so just look for 83 weeks on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. And if you don't mind, hit the little bell, that'll give you a notification. Whenever we post a new video, there's going to be uh, lots of new content coming on YouTube this year. Eric and I are, are fiddling around with the idea of doing more video components with our show. And uh, I'm actually in the process of doing a bit of a remodel here at the Conradison, uh, just to get ready for that. So. Stay tuned. You want to be an early adopter. You want to go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Scott Hall coming out now rocking the world tag team title. I don't care how many times we watch him. I'm going to say it every time. If you drew a professional wrestler, this is what you hope he looks like. God, he was so good. He was so talented. Still doesn't get the credit he deserves. And a lot of that is his own fault, but. When Scott was on his game, there was nobody, nobody close. 
all around. I'm talking about not only what he could do in the ring, but his character, his promos, the way he carried himself, the way he, his psychology, the way he could read an audience. I mean, he was he was fan, fantastic. I'm not saying he was better than a Ric Flair or anything like that, but he was in his own way. He was just one. I think one of the best of all time. Had his demons. Had a difficult time. Still is dealing with him. But if you get to know Scott deep down inside, you know, or I shouldn't even say deep down inside because he, Scott, Scott wears his emotions on his sleeve a lot of the times. But if you get to know Scott even a little bit, you you can see in him that he is really one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Unfortunately, his his demons sometimes get in the way and. That's become an issue for him over the past, but he's, he's certainly better now. And I see him out <clears throat> at conventions and, and events, and he loves, loves signing for the people. He's, he does a great job. Good guy. Take it on Ray Trailer here. Scott Hall in uh, the black tights. I remember him, or the red tights. I remember him wearing the black tights with the red letters a lot, but. I don't remember these red with black. These must not have made it very long. Ray Trailer's fired up. Fired up. Come on in here, boy. We'll get my hands on you. Knock the shit out of you. Boy, that's a really good Southern impression. I've done spend a little time in the South now. Come on. You know it. <laughs> well, if you start saying things like fixing to, I'll believe you. Because that's a, that's a Southern issue. You know, we say no. It's a southern issue. And I, I, would, I never say fixing to, but I do say I'm making, I'm making some fixings for a sandwich. Oh. Or no, I say it like this: Come on, Lori, we gotta go to the store. We need some fixings for some sandwiches. Have you? Uh, did you ever watch Eastbound and Down? I have, dude. When when they are doing the potato bar in the very last season, <laughs> and they've got the ideas for, I don't know what it is, what it is like. Uh, tots and tits or taters and tits or whatever in the, in the kiosk <laughs> in the mall whenever they would just say this is where the potatoes will be and this is where all the fig thins will be well that has megan had never seen it so this past year i made her watch it and now whenever you know we if we're making steaks or whatever and we throw some potatoes in the oven she'll say hey i've got all the uh, potatoes in the oven and i made sure we have plenty of fig thins so Megan is really from Minneapolis, right? I mean, that's where she spent. Yeah, I mean, you and her and Laurie and y'all are all from the same area. I know. Isn't that funny? It's funny how this happens. But yeah, she. So for her, some of these southern things, even though she spent some time in Charlotte and has lived in the South, but these are all still. It's all still new. Yeah, she, did, she didn't learn how to cook fried chicken until uh, she moved down here. But she's doing it in an air fryer now. Are you and Mrs. B in on air fryers? You know, we got Garrett and uh, MJ1, our son and daughter-in-law. We got them one for Christmas, and they're going to fire it up this weekend, and we're going to try it out. It could happen. By the time we get back to the ranch and Cody, we, we could have a we could have a brand new air fryer in the trunk of the car. Yeah, I was. Uh, we were a late adopter, but uh, she's got wings in that thing down pat now. Speaking of down pat, that's a quick one. Oh no, he kicked out. I need Scott Hall to adjust his trunks here. I'm seeing more of him than I need to. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Maybe that's why those trunks didn't. Yeah, that's why long. they didn't make it. It was booted. They, they were, they were cut a little high. 
Hey, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, the impact of, of the show being overexposed and, you know, you adding all these extra hours here with thunder. I thought of that recently when, you know, I've got this group chat of my wrestling friends and there were some guys in there saying that they didn't see enough of this guy or that guy on the AEW program and everyone, well, the discussion became, well, they've got so many wrestlers. They can't showcase them all in a two hour show. And other guys would say, oh no, they don't have a, their roster's not big enough. They don't have enough guys. And so then the, the group started to say, oh, well, they should add a second show. Oh, and, God. And, and some folks said, oh, it should just be an hour. And I remember thinking, well, if Eric Bischoff was in this group, he would just go slap the fuck out of everybody in the group for suggesting a second show. Because as it is, AEW still feels like appointment television for a lot of the viewers. Um, but if there's two shows, that becomes less of a priority. Because if you, oh, I'll just catch them next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that's, and again, I, I don't mean to, you know, I'm not making fun of anybody and I don't want to talk down about people that have opinions, but those are opinions and those are observations and perspectives from people that have never been in the television business. Now, look, I fly an airplane. I'm, I'm a pilot. I was a pilot. I haven't flown down in quite a few years. Ray trailer gets the big victory. He beat Scott Hall here on thunder. Surprise, surprise. I love it. Georgia, I'm coming home to you with the victory under my belt. But just because I can fly an airplane, at one point I could fly an airplane, and just because I fly commercially a lot and I've flown all over the world, I've probably got million-mile status on three different airlines, that doesn't make me an experienced pilot. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It, it doesn't mean that I should have an opinion about the aeronautical industry or I should be telling Boeing how they should be making their planes, although maybe that should happen. But you know what I'm saying? And I think people who tend to watch wrestling and are fans of wrestling, to them the answers seem very simple. But they're often not. And and I think you pointed it out very succinctly and accurately. If AEW, my opinion, free advice here, not that anybody's listening and I don't really care if they do or not, but – if I was AEW, and I doubt that they are contemplating a second show. They got their hands full with one. But nothing would kill that brand faster than adding another episode. I think you'd that be was quick. I, I feel pretty good about the fact that um, more than one EVP listen to this show. Well, that's good. You're getting a lot of free advice, that's for sure. Maybe I should stop that and start charging them. Dude, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Maybe, maybe that's uh, something we should think about for 2020 that you could, you know, listen, that that's a real thing in sales. I don't know that mean you've ever talked about this, but coaching is like the new hot thing for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years where sales professionals will pay hundreds and most of the time, thousands of dollars per month just to have someone that they can call and bounce ideas off of. They'll schedule a call or two a week. And a lot of it is just about accountability where, you, Hey, we're going to make a plan. And now I'm going to ask, you know, three days later, did you do it? But then they're also going to talk about, you know, what your mental blocks are and what your thinking is, what your strategies are. And then they give you advice as someone who's done it. I mean, I know guys who pay 30 grand a year in coaching, like every year for the last five years. 
there's probably some wrestling ilk out there who'd be better. Who'd be good. Well, served to just write easy E a check, just uh bend his ear with some ideas here and there. Ooh, good idea. I don't know. I could handle it. I'd have, I'd probably, it, it would be fun for about a week or two and then I'd be like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? You're going to do what? You just over wrestling. You think? No, no, not at all. I love, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm digging this. I love good wrestling, right? I love, I love great stories. I love great characters. Um, but the idea of wrestling fans calling me up and, hey, I'm going to start a wrestling promotion in Poughkeepsie, and you know, what should I do first? <laughs> I just, I just that, that's not something that I could possibly wrap my head around. Well, no, but I, I don't think it would be that. I think it would probably be guys who are already in the business, right? Mm, well, that yeah, but I, and that I do sometimes with my friends, you know, right. people that I. You know, I'll check in every once. I'm not going to name any names, but I'll check in every once in a while with people who are in different companies and say, hey, God, that was really cool what you did. Maybe think about doing this next time and that type of thing. So I, I do it for fun. Um, never thought about doing it for money. It's an interesting thought. We should get Silva on that. <laughs> Silva, <laughs> put down the luchador mask and get going. By the way, we're watching a hell of a match here. Uh, Ultima Dragon. And Juventud Guerrero, two of my all-time favorites. They're in here for the Cruiserweight Championship. And uh, Ultima Dragon, of course, is your champ. As a recap so far, Chris Adams over Randy Savage, Rick Martell over Luis Piccoli, Tenzon over O'Hara, Ric Flair over Jericho, Giant over Ming, Goldberg over McMichael, Steiners over Buff and Conan. And then Ray Trailer, believe it or not, beats Scott Hall. And now it's Hooventude and Ultima Dragon. Two matches remain after this. Uh, it feels like we started this show last year, and we're still here. <laughs> uh, there are eleven matches on the card, but we also saw the full replay of oh, what a what a moonsault! Didn't uh, didn't connect all the way, but it sure did look pretty. Uh, but we got Eric Bischoff and Larry Zabisco in here too. So twelve matches in their entirety, plus lots of clips, uh, proving once again that three hours is just too damn long. Man, is it ever. What a mistake it was to put on a three-hour show coming out of the shoot. You know what I appreciate about, and I know you said earlier, you don't usually like to comment on guys' gear. Ultimo Dragon needs to be really commended for his gear because it's so outside of the box. Not just a, a mask and tights, but the, the and, and those are all very cool, by the way, and lots of little innovations in and of themselves. But this shoulder pad piece that he wears, I know some people may not have liked it, but it really makes him stand out from everybody else. I think it's a, a nice touch. It is. And very, very smart businessman, a great performer, and a real gentleman in and out of the ring. Uh, Love spending time with Ultimo Dragon. Got to hang with him in Tokyo a little bit a couple months ago and had a blast. And he's, he's still performing. He's He's great. I met him for the first time, uh, around WrestleMania this past year in New York. And I didn't know it was him at first, but I'm at the hotel bar and I see our, our great close personal friend, Sonny Ono come in. And with him is this good looking, well-dressed dude carrying Louis Vuitton bags. And he's got on some Gucci loafers. And I mean, he looks like he's just fresh off of a, a shoot somewhere. 
and it took me to the count of three to realize, oh, that's Ultimo Dragon. Because he, he does look like a, like a huge movie star, doesn't he? He carries himself like a celebrity in a fucking hotel bar. Where as you as you look around, you're like, okay, that guy's been on you know TNT for two decades, and that guy was on USA for two decades. And hey, I know that guy. He's in like 14 Hall of Fames. But this guy, who you don't know who it is because he doesn't have his mask on, he looks like the biggest star in the whole bar. Yeah, he does. And by the way, if you're ever in the market for some outstanding Cuban cigars, like the real deal, he's your guy. Put 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 a word into Sonny. He'll make the arrangements. This guy can get his hands on some incredible Cuban cigars. Nice sponsored element here. The picture in a picture effect. Of course, this is your instant replay sponsored by 1-800-COLLECT. And they knew where to put it because it's a title change. Juventud Guerrera has just beat the model himself, Ultimo Dragon. And bam, Juventud, your new cruiserweight champion, right after that beautiful 450 splash. Charles Robinson counts them down. What do you think a uh, a sponsored element like this would have costed in 98? I realize it's 22 years ago. There's no way you'd know for sure. Take a stab. I would say in the ballpark of 25 to 35 grand. That's actually a pretty good value. Yeah. Hard to say. It depends on, you know, the buy itself. You know, did they buy 26 weeks? Did they buy 13 weeks? Did they buy one? Um, but I would say probably 25, 35 grand. I mean, you, my can, guess. you consider it's 4 million people and it wasn't just ran in a stop set where people are running to the bathroom. It's inside the show. That's a different deal. Mike Tanae's in the middle of the ring and, uh, Bret Hart's a little surprised. He got some pyro there. It's caught him off guard, but here he comes strutting that ass to the ring jeans and the uh, leather jacket. Very signature look for Bret Hart. Stole it from me. Same leather jacket. I wore to the ring. Here's the thing. That's a little different about Bret and you. The boot situation. <laughs> Check these boots out. He's tucking his jeans into his boots. And these look like the old uh Austin Hall Dusty Road style wrestling boots, but these are just traditional cowboy boots. And he's in Florida and he's got his jeans tucked into his boots. What do you think? It would be easy to poke fun at that, but that was kind of a look back then, especially with with wrestlers, especially in Florida. I'm not kidding about that. You know, I, when I first came to WCW, you know, we had a lot of our events were obviously in Georgia North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, and just like Barry Windham and Dusty Rhodes and Dustin Rhodes. And, you know, so many of the guys, you know, all walked around with their jeans tucked into the cowboy boots. Now I never wore, I never did it because I, you know, I have cowboy boots. I've got some, I have a, really super selection of really high quality boots, but I hardly ever wear them because I've got a really wide foot with a real high arch and it's hard for me to find a comfortable boot that I can wear for more than an hour or two. Um, but I, I, I could never see myself tucking my jeans into my cowboy boots, but a lot of guys did. It looked good on Brett. I mean, he, he wore it well, he could get away with it. Do you, uh, now you, you're, are you getting close captioning on this? Can you tell what he's talking about? Yeah. He's saying, he, you know, saying? he didn't have any other way to prove himself. Uh, or he didn't have any, any choice in WCW, but to prove himself all over again. 
And with all due respect to Ric Flair and everybody else, I'm not going to stop proving myself um, until I prove that I'm the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. And of course, we're setting up the sold out match, and here he comes. And this is going to be a highly rated segment, too. I think this is the second highest rated segment. And a lot of longtime fans remember that Ric Flair dropped the world title to Bret Hart, allowing Bret his first opportunity to be world champion back in 1992. And, uh, six years later, here we are, but now instead of we're a big in the WWF, we're in Flair country, WCW, where the big boys play. There you go. Had to get that in there. This had, to be a, this had to be a good promo. The great thing about two guys like this, uh, three guys like this, you don't have to script this. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, you couldn't if you wanted to with Rick, but no, you didn't have to. And, you know, kidding aside, with a guy like Ric Flair, it was almost, um, oh, how do I say it? It was almost insulting, I think. To go to Rick and say, okay, Rick, this is what I want you to say in your promo, and I want you to do it like this, and here's the verbiage I want you to use, and right here, about a third of the way through the promo, I want you to make this point. I mean, for a guy like Ric Flair, who is so good at cutting promos, um, it, the, the thought wouldn't have crossed my mind, really. I mean, you'd sit down and you'd talk about the basics of a promo, where it's going. And maybe you'd like to talk about the finish of that promo and how you're going to leave it. And you, you needed that primarily for timing and for the truck, you know, for the director. But aside from that, you know, these promos were great, much like they're doing in AEW or attempting to do more and more of, you know, the less scripted a promo is, it's so much better. That's one of the things that I think is that I really enjoy about AEW over the WWE product is the interviews tend to just feel so much more organic and real to me. And it's the favorite part of it. It's not just because, you know, I've been in the business for 30 years. For me, the best part of wrestling as a fan was always the promos. Always. Those are the things that I remember. You know, when I think back to when I was a kid, you know, and and even growing up in Detroit when I was really young, you know, seven, eight, nine years old watching wrestling, certainly by the time I got to Minneapolis – you know, I, I remember some of the matches, but I remember a lot more of the promos. Mad Dog Vashon, you know, I've, I've talked about him ad nauseum. You know, Nick Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, Wahoo McDaniels, Larry the Axe Henning. You know, all of those guys could, you know, Ivan Putsky for crying out loud in the AWA. There's just so many great interviews, and those those are the things that I remember. So when, when you get a guy like Ric Flair, Arn Anderson now, you know, and there are others, Chris Jericho certainly in, at that level, you know, that could go out there and they know the point that they're going to make, but they don't know exactly how they're going to make it till they're in the moment. Those are the, those are the interviews that really, you know, make me love the product. And I think that's what's missing for me. And, and again, this is not a bash WWE because you know, there's people there that I love and, and that I'll always support. And I, I enjoyed working for the company have a ton of respect for everybody from Vince McMahon on down. So this is not a bash WWE thing, but this is just me talking about what I like. And I think one of the things that makes it hard for me to watch WWE 
is the quality of the promos are so flat. I was searching for a word. They're just not real. Very few of them, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are so heavily scripted and so not the person that's trying to perform it. There's nothing organic about it. There's nothing that feels real. There's nothing that's remotely believable in so many of those promos that it actually takes me out of my enjoyment of the match. If you don't care about the talent or you're not buying into the talent or you're not buying into the talent's emotion that they're trying to convey, it's really hard to get excited about the match. And that's unfortunately one of the things that I run into. You know, the WWE is just so sanitized and so filtered that it's hard to get excited about it. For me, other people, you know, love it. And God bless them all. But just when, when you see a guy like Ric Flair and Arn Anderson and the Steve Austins, the guys that could really go out, Mick Foley, another one, you know, the guys that could go out and just wing it, Chris Jericho, as I mentioned, and deliver a great promo and create emotion that didn't exist before the promo. That's the fun part of this business for me. Next up, Scott Norton coming to the ring here, and he's going to be uh, taking on Lex Luger. Of course, this match was put together after the uh, first segment here on the show. As we know, Lex Luger and Randy Savage are about to main event sold out. So makes sense that we would try to get that one ready. And this match, this, this event was in Daytona beach, right? That's right. The ocean okay. center. Luger at the top of his game here. Have you talked to Lex lately? Uh, not since November. Yeah. That was the last time I saw him too. Great guy. Really, really admire him for the way he's handled, you know, what's happened to him over the last couple of years and, and, uh, his outlook on life. I, I never thought I'd hear myself say that I'm, I, I'm a friend of Lex Luger's, but just have a, a ton of respect for him. I never thought that day would come, but I do a ton of respect for Lex Luger. It's really unbelievable because you would hear all these stories of really a different guy than the one you meet. And the, you know, the Lex Luger you meet now could not be more polite, more accommodating. I mean, he's just salt of the earth, dude. Great guy. You want to be in a room with him. You know, I saw him, I was in the hotel in Baltimore for Starcast, and he was just arriving as I was, uh, as I was leaving for something and, uh, just, you know, met him in the lobby and hung out. He's just always so cheerful, so up, you know, and, and I guess after going through what he's gone through and the challenges of it all, he, you know, he's gotten to that point in life where he just is happy to be alive every day. And it shows like, I like being around people like that. He, he's a great guy. Scott Norton dressed like a brick. It looks like a brick wall there. He's got the, the kind of brick wall gimmick. Well, he is, he is a brick wall. He's another, do you know, Scott, have you gotten to know Scott? No, I've met him a few times, but I mean, I've never like had beers with him or anything. We're going to fix that. We're going to fix that. And what we need, what we really need to fix and what I really want you to experience is Scott and his wife, Tammy. When you get those two together, throw about a dozen beers, maybe more in the middle of it all. God damn. That's a funny afternoon. They are hilarious together. They should be doing stand up in Vegas. And she's, she's tougher than he is. 
I mean, she's a badass. <laughs> and she takes no shit from anybody. She's awesome. Tammy, I hope you heard that. So she doesn't beat my ass next time she sees me. <laughs> Off he goes. Setting up the rack. Not That's a lot of beef up there, brother. That's right. Holy smokes. I got to tell you, a lot of our listeners who are my age put their friends in the rack when they were kids. Really? I can't tell you how many times my friends and I would. I mean, motherfuckers were getting racked. There was nobody racking you. No, you'd be surprised. Get the fuck out of here. No, you gotta, yeah, we're talking about high school, brother. Now, what did you weigh in high school? Not to get personal, but what did you weigh? I was probably, uh, 290. Maybe, maybe 275. Damn. But the other lineman, you know, we had one kid. <laughs> he was a hoss, man. He got a scholarship and, uh, he was, he was the giant of the team, the left tackle. And yeah, he threw my big ass up there. He didn't care. 290 in high school. You know what I weighed in high school? 125. Well, no more than that. I, my senior year, I wrestled at 155, but I only weighed 142 or 143. It's kind of hard to imagine that. Now my left leg weighs 142. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's what? Okay, we got Hogan and Sting outside of the ring here with. Yeah, this is a replay from Starcade 97. You guys are just giving away the thing you just, just made everybody pay for 10 days ago. Convince the audience that you don't need to buy the pay-per-view because we'll give you the finish for free on TV. Yeah. This is great formula. Really smart formula. Well, somebody in the back was like, Jesus Christ, we got to fill three hours. We just did two hours. Fuck it. Well, and that's, and that's the real answer right there. We just, we didn't have the talent. We didn't have the creative in place. We just, yeah, that's the real reason we did it. I mean, cause as we're talking right now, there's 25 minutes left in the show without commercials. There's 25 minutes of on air content. We've got one match left and it's diamond Dallas page at Kevin Nash. And realistically, you know, we're not getting a 25 minute Kevin Nash match. I hope not. He does, <laughs> he does too, by the way. Oh yeah. No, Kevin was not one of those guys that would go, come on. I need a little more time. Come on, I just give me 30 minutes for the minute. Just give just give me 30 minutes. That was never, I never had that conversation with Kevin. By the way, this entire show has been built around how, you know, there was some collusion and that's the reason the WCW Nick Lambros is involved because the referee here fast counted sting, but we show the replay and it's very much not a fast count. And of course, Brett's like, it was a fast count. And Nick says, no, it's not. And then he punches him. So if you watch this under the context of, you know, not what was supposed to happen, but what did happen, you're like, boy, this Bret Hart's a real dickhead. He's beating up the ref for doing his job. And yeah, that was some horrible communication. Let's put it that way. We'll let it go at that. There you go. Stinger's fired up right now. He just about launched himself into the front row. The vanilla splash. That, vanilla splash? Is that what you call it? Because you said he's not tan. Ah, good one. Also, it sounds like a dessert, I guess. 
Hogan into the ropes. Stinger with another vanilla splash in the corner. Hogan goes down <laughs> face first. What? This is the way you seamlessly. Another vanilla splash. Well, you tagged it. No, What's I'm your not tag? mad at it. So next time Steve Borden sees us and just go, what, what, what's up with the vanilla splash? I'm just going to tell him it was your idea. No, I, I'm, I'm sure the next time I see him, it'll. It, the, my conversations with him always start like this. I can't believe you talked me into doing this again. <laughs> he says that, but he loves it. He's every. I've heard him say the same type of thing, but once he gets to where he's going, once he gets out there with the audience, he has a blast. And there you see the locker room empty out. Everybody coming in to celebrate. There's some people there that I don't recognize. We get a better look at some of them. You know, well, at least we showed some enthusiasm for this win here. Come on, Brian Clark. Good guy. I didn't realize this, but. One of the first guys out, I think, was the Renegade in street clothes. And that's, I was trying to make that out. I just caught a glimpse of him, but I think you're right. No gimmick, nothing. Well, I've got 3% battery left on my laptop here, Conrad. And we've got 21 minutes to go. So hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to get through to the show without me having to go get my charger. Well, here's the deal. If you have to go get your charger, uh, I can tell everybody how they can upgrade their style. Because here's right. the thing. This, you go do that. I'm going to go get my chargers so we don't miss anything. I'm with it.
Believe it or not, we're seeing yet another clip, uh, this time of uh, Hogan and Sting, but from Nitro. This is the rematch the day after Starcade. So much like there was no reason to uh, to order the pay-per-view, no reason to watch Nitro either. You can just get caught up right here. Oh, you're so right. This was so wrong. This is such a bad way to launch the show. By the way, I want to mention, you know, one of the things that was in the newsletters around this time is that Deborah was essentially dismissed from WCW after, I guess, Flair nixed the idea of her being uh, his manager. What was up with, uh, with Deborah and her time in WCW coming to an end here when seemingly Steve McMichael's still here? Yeah, I'm not. God, I don't really remember. I hate to say that because I know people like to bust my balls on social media whenever I say I'm sorry, I don't recall. But, you know, the details of their relationship, ooh, and needed J.J. Dillon's balls. That was kind of fun. They got divorced in 98. So is it fair to say that this is probably when that all started to become an issue, maybe? Yeah, I I would say it was probably based on that personal relationship. You know, look, Deborah was never... She was never originally supposed to be on camera. She right. just happened to be showing up, and she kind of found herself on camera. So she was not the uh, the A piece of talent in that relationship. Uh, Steve was. And then when their relationship started to deteriorate, it began to be an issue, and there was no other thing, nothing else for really Deborah to do that made sense other than try to find her a spot, which we weren't really interested in doing. Um, we decided to let her go. And I, I liked Deborah. She was fun. There was a period of time for her, about a year or two, when Deborah and Steve and my wife Lori and I and Janie Engel and you know a bunch of us would all always hang out after the shows, and they were always they were always a great time. Steve was a little Steve. You could never read, you know. I don't I don't know. Have you ever talked to Steve McMichael? Yeah, met? yeah, cool you know? guy. He taught me the phrase scholarship. Yeah, he's a he, he's got a dry sense of humor. You know what I mean? Sometimes you don't know when he's ribbing or not. And I remember one night we were, I don't remember where we were. We were somewhere. We were staying at a, uh, at a, at a nice Marriott downtown somewhere. And Steve and I had been, we'd been pounding a few and Ric Flair and Arn was there and everybody was in a really good mood. And we all went to bed and about three o'clock in the morning, someone's pounding on my door. I'm going, Oh, who the hell could this possibly be? So I, I get up. I go out and I look through the little people in the, in the door and I see Steve McMichael standing there in nothing but a towel. I'm going, oh my God, now what? And I open the door and as I open the door, he holds up this big 44 Magnum pistol. And I'm now I'm now I'm going, okay, this this could get seriously ugly. I'm running through my mind. What did I possibly do to piss off Steve McMichael that he'd bring a gun to my room? And he goes, here, brother, my gift to you. Hands me a 44 Magnum, wasn't loaded, a Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum, just hands it to me at 3 o'clock in the morning, turns around and walks away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Didn't really need it right now, but not sure how I'm going to get it home, but Thank you. My God, I am all over this show. As I'm walking out now with Hulk Hogan, I am all over this show. Check out the hair. Yeah, you are all over the show. Kevin Nash yes. in the back here. Looks like he's going to be taking on uh, Diamond Dallas Page. 
But why wasn't Kevin in the front of this procession? He's the match. Things that make you go, hmm. 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 Maybe somebody was trying to get himself over just a little <laughs> too much. I love you for that. Just a little too much. I mean, at least you're at least you're acknowledging it. Hey, I'm self-aware. How about despite, uh, JJ. despite rumors to the contrary? I like the little uh, skit there with Kevin Nash pretending to blow some boogies on uh, JJ. I was just going to ask you, did I see that right? Did it look like Kevin Nash was emptying a nostril on top of JJ's head? Kind of looks cool, though. Would have deserved it. I love that you're not the biggest JJ fan. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm, I... I I'll leave it alone. No, no, you've well enough. En- enough water has passed under the bridge. No need to pull the scab off that wound again. I just don't like dishonest people. That's all. I can take assholes. I can take people that are, you know, I can I can put up with a lot, but I, you know, liars, not so much. I, mean, I know you can put up with assholes. You've put up with me for nearly two years here on this show, and loving every minute of it. Well, maybe not every minute, but no, I'm, I'm beginning to, in the beginning, it was tough. I'm going to be honest with you. In the beginning, it was like, this motherfucker's trying to piss me off. You know, I had to go take blood pressure medicine and all kinds of shit after I was done doing a show with you. But now I'm, I'm embracing it. I, I enjoy it. I look forward to it each and every week. Yeah, that's a stretch, but most for the, the most time, part, yeah. I, I do enjoy doing that. Listen, every now and again, because of our schedules, I'll be like, can you tape at 6 a.m.? You don't love that. <laughs> no, I do, though. I'd much rather tape at 6 o'clock in the morning than 6 o'clock at night. By the end of the day, I'm kind of just, ugh. It's hard to get excited. You know, I'm just kind of beat by the end of the day. <clears throat> but, you know, you get me first thing in the morning with a pot of coffee in me? Huh. Hold on, brother. I'm good with that anytime. What's going on here? I, I can't tell. It looks like they're uh, making Sting forfeit the world title. So just to catch you up, we had a oh and look, Sting is talking. You got no guts. That's what he says. That's a fact. And you, you're a dead man. That's what he tells Sting. That's what he tells Hulk Hogan and. There we go. We go to the break and when we come back, it's time to do a little wrestling. But the backstory here, of course, is Hulk Hogan beats Sting for the world title at uh Starcade. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess Sting beats Hulk Hogan for the world title at Starcade after the referee's reversal. And then the next night on Nitro, they do a rematch and uh Sting is is your world champ. And now fast forward here. And they've stripped him. It looks like they're going to try to set up some sort of a tournament. But our last batch, our main event here on Thunder is Diamond Dallas Page, who is your United States champion. He's going to be wrestling uh, Kevin Nash. So Nash is going to come back out again, which I guess Mike's coming out a minute ago kind of weird, but they wanted to make sure Sting didn't pull any shenanigans. How young does Dave Penzer look here? Holy shit. Yeah, he looks like he's 16. Yeah. How old does DDP look there? Uh, DDP has always looked 50. 
even when he wasn't. He's like Arn Anderson and JJ Dillon to me. Yeah, he looked fifty when he was twenty five, and he looks fifty when he's sixty four. Yeah, exactly. Although I, you know, Paige DDP continues to deny this. I think he's older than me. I think he's somehow he gimmicked his birth certificate. Yeah. You know, I, because he keeps telling me he's younger than I am and I'm just not buying it. Just not buying it. About what? Like a year, right? Yeah. But he looks, you know, well, he's in better shape than me now. Well, but he grew up in the bars though, you know, so running bars, you know, the, the first part of his life. You know, in Florida, there's no doubt that he, uh, he had some hard living in some of those years. Takes its toll. Is that David Flair? No, I'm just kidding. Kind of looked like David Flair. If it was, he'd be in the middle of the ring carrying that U S championship. True. Hey, by the way, how about that's a Flair family tradition now, Andrade and, uh, Charlotte getting engaged over new years and i read about that congratulations to andrade and charlotte i'm so happy for them i uh at smackdown in los angeles the premiere show i had a chance to spend some time uh with andrade and uh and charlotte just a brief period of time my daughter montana was there because she lives in los angeles and she came to the event my my daughter montana hadn't seen uh, Ashley slash Charlotte since they were little kids and my daughter if, if you were to meet her she's kind of like Laura she's like five foot three or five foot two and tiny little thing and Charlotte's not and, and my daughter went up to Charlotte was at the end of the bar with Andrade and my daughter Montana went up to, to say hello she went up by herself I was busy talking to Bruce or somebody and and uh, Montana went up and said hello and Charlotte kind of looked at her like who the hell are you? Who are you? And then once uh, Montana introduced herself, obviously they big hugs all around and, you know, hadn't seen each other for a long time and caught up, but it was really great. And Andrade and Charlotte really seemed to, uh, I saw them together obviously that night after the show, but I also saw them together. Um, I was coming down an escalator and I saw them or elevator and I saw them together. They didn't, they weren't aware I was, I was anywhere in the vicinity. So I got got to kind of see them on their own, so to speak. And you could tell they were very, very much in love and like giddy with each other. So it's, it's very cool to see, wish them the best. It is cool. You know, and all the time I've known her, this is, uh, by far the happiest she's ever been. And, uh, congrats to them. Diamond Dallas page taken to the Kevin Nash. You'd expect this to be a good match. Both these guys have a tremendous amount of, uh, chemistry with each other respect for each other you know inside outside of the ring diamond Dallas page in fact one of the reasons that kevin nash ended up coming back to work for wcw so uh, a lot of chemistry here this is one of those matches where you know going in that they're both going to go well out of their way and and give more than 100 percent trying to make each other look good it's exactly the kind of chemistry you hope to get as often as you can get it but you knew you were getting it here and we're seeing it Kind of tough to have a match though with a guy as big as Kevin Nash. You know, he's got his he has his speed, he's a big, powerful guy, but it tended to slow things down a lot. Page was the type of guy he didn't he loved to sell. He's selling his ass off here in the corner as we watch this match. Uh now he's going into the ropes and takes a big forearm to the back. 
Page is selling like a superstar here, but his his instinct is to speed this up about two and a third times faster than it is right now. So he's I think Page is probably fighting his instincts, you know, because he's in there with Kevin and he knows he has to slow it down. And that was a challenge, I'm sure, for for Diamond Dallas Page. We never talked about it, but just knowing him. Now he's now he's going into his comeback and he's firing up. This is where Page is is at his best. This is where his comfort zone is, is making that comeback and in, in, in a fast page, fast paced kind of way. But he gets cut off. Because Kevin, on the other hand, doesn't like working such a fast pace. Who calls a match like this? Kevin. Oh, well, <laughs> Kevin, technically Kevin, but Page would be in his ear probably a week before this match took place. Because Page was one of those guys, like Randy Savage, he liked to have every single beat of a match laid out on paper before he got to the ring. Kevin, not so much. <laughs> that wasn't Kevin's style that I remember. But Page, you know, literally every beat, every bump, every spot, had to be laid out on paper. So I, I'm sure Page was petitioning on a pretty consistent base basis to to kind of get the match that he was hoping to get out of Kevin. But it would have been Kevin's call, ultimately. We should mention, uh, next week here on the show, we won't be doing a watch-along, but we will be talking about a January pay-per-view from January 17th, 1999. Sold out 99 from the uh, Charleston Civic Center in Charleston, West Virginia, which I actually went to watch wrestling this last year. Uh, the main event is a very interesting one to say the least. It's Goldberg and Scott Hall in a stun gun ladder match underneath. We'll also have Rick and David Flair teaming up to take on Kurt and Barry Windham. We'll have a fatal four way for the cruiserweight title with Kidman, Ray Mysterio, Hooventude and Psychosis. How's this for an interesting stipulation? Chris Jericho and Perry Saturn in a loser must wear a dress match. We've also going to have uh, Lex Luger and Conan in singles action. Bam Bam Bigelow taking on Wrath. Fit Finley in there with Van Hammer. Norman Smiley in there with Chavo Guerrero Jr. And Chris Benoit and Mike Enos open the show. Uh, some interesting matches on the undercard, but. Uh, a loser must wear a dress match. Rick and David teaming up a stun gun ladder match. Interesting time to say the least in WCW. Crazy, just simply crazy or cray cray. Unbelievable. I'm looking forward to that. Stun Not. gun ladder match. What the fuck? A stun gun ladder match. Snake eyes. <laughs> Come on. What a cool move that was. It is a cool move. Page took it really well too. People forget how big Page was at this point. He's a he's a relatively big guy, but you know, compared to Kevin, you don't really get that impression. But yeah. he's bouncing he's bouncing around pretty well for a big man. DDP's probably what six five, six six. Yeah, six five. I would say six four, six five. Probably at this point, he was two fifty, two sixty, maybe. He's a big dude. And we should remind you that. You know, they helped make DDP a year prior to this. Uh, and, and that's, that's what I mean, Conrad, about the chemistry. I mean, these guys were tight.
I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you about to no, say? That's it. Just in, in the in the uh, in the Superdome in New Orleans, when they offered him the shirt to join the NWO, and uh, he diamond cut Scott Hall, and then when Kevin Nash saw and he gave chase, uh, DDP just ducked and he took a big tumble. And oh, speaking of a big thing, how about the giant coming down right now? He's on a collision course with Kevin Nash and he's coming to rescue diamond Dallas page from a jackknife Hulk Hogan, of course, second to Kevin Nash. Well, DDP needs a little backup to even the odds. It's a cool matchup is, you know, you see Paul white slowly, even slower than Kevin Nash entering the ring, square it off. Paul White with a little bit of a fake lat spread going on there. Completely unnecessary. God, have you met Paul White? I have. The size of his hands. <laughs> Can you imagine getting, like, shoot punched in the face with that big fucker? I cannot. You know, listen, I, we, we had fun beating up this first episode of Thunder. Way too many clips and, and, and lots of relatively unknown wrestlers, but... It wasn't a bad show and it ended really nicely. It goes off the air with a lot of action and it had a hot finish like so many nitros did. So it wasn't that bad, but certainly uh, a, a big moment in time for WCW. That'll do it for this debut episode of thunder. Watch along next week. Sold out 99 mark your calendars on the 20th. It'll be all about sting finally debuting on raw that happened on January 19th, 2015. Then we'll go revisit clash of the champions 30, which went down in 1995 in Las Vegas. And we'll get your new February started right around super bowl time with hashtag ask Eric anything. If you haven't already go follow us on social media at 83 weeks, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Uh, lots of fun stuff to dig into the archives there, especially if you're looking for one little fight, one little argument, one little discussion, one little topic, and you want to share it with a friend, hit the subscribe button on our YouTube, and don't forget to hit that bell so you'll get notified when new stuff gets uploaded. Until next time, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Westwood One each and every Monday on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. <laughs>